how can you do this? Madeline cries. I love you. And Scott reaches over and snatches her wig. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. And we're back with Sarah's Century. This is session two of episode 100. Sarah, how has it been being 40 so far? It's been about a week since our last session. That's right. I'm five days in and I gotta say I'm loving it. It's, it's what I always <laughs> wanted. I just always wanted to be 40. I feel like whenever I was just a small child, I was just like, someday I'm gonna be 40 and it's gonna Some be great. Sweet day. And now I'm here we are, you know? You just had to wait a really long time. We're here to talk more about Madeline Pryor, love of my life. Madeline Pryor. Madeline Jennifer Pryor. Well, if it isn't Madeline <laughs> Jennifer Pryor. We are pacing ourselves because we just, we know. We know <laughs> and we want to make sure that it's to the quality that you all are expecting. When last we left our heroine, we had just concluded X-Men Alpha Flight. She had sacrificed her magical powers of healing as the mystic anodyne in order to rebuke Loki and restore creativity and magic to the world. It is quite the arc for Ms. Pryor from X-Men Alpha Flight in 1985-86 through to Inferno in 88 and 89. If you think about it semiotically, morally, mystically, <laughs> all of those things. Yeah. Uh. This is where the timeline gets a little bit wonky. So basically, if you're just reading Uncanny, the timeline's fine and there's nothing confusing about it. If you want to also read X-Men Alpha Flight, it was coming out at the same time, but a little bit later. So like take us back a couple months to Uncanny X-Men 197. We get a glimpse of Scott and Madeline in Anchorage at their cabin that they live in now. The one that we've seen in the From the Ashes storyline. Anchorage, Alaska, the home of North Star Airlines Captain Madeline Summers and her husband of less than a year, Scott Summers. So that contextualizes that time has passed. The endless honeymoon is now over <laughs> and they are back in Alaska. But this has to take place after X-Men Alpha Flight because they find out she's pregnant in X-Men Alpha Flight. The uncanny arc that starts here that leads into Trial of Magneto, she's definitely pregnant. So it's just one of those things. There's also the Asgard annual in here that's similarly timeline wonky. And Travis Starnes, God bless him, actually seems to have made this all work as a chronology. And that's the order that I've been going with here. So 197, it's literally just one page. Scott is looking at his visor and musing that Moira wouldn't have called him if it wasn't urgent. There's something wrong with Professor Xavier. If you've been following Uncanny, you know that Professor Xavier has been in declining health. He was attacked by a group of bigots and his health has been kind of steadily failing ever since. 
Magneto has recently taken up residence at the mansion, seeking sanctuary there with Xavier. This is all leading into Trial of Magneto, in which Xavier will be mortally wounded, sent off to Shi'ar space, and replaced as headmaster by Magneto in his attempt at reform. Scott is troubled by all these developments. He thinks about how so much has changed since he joined the X-Men. Magneto was their worst enemy, but now he's the professor's friend. And he's doing all of this brooding, as he does, <laughs> while Madeline sleeps next to him. And she wakes up. <laughs> to this guy. You're up awfully early, hotshot. Madeline, I'm sorry I was trying not to wake you. Sneaking out on your wife, huh, big boy? No, I mean, it's... Scott, sweetheart, relax. I was joking. Oh, I wish you weren't going. I'll miss you. Likewise, but I have to. Xavier needs me, and I owe him too much to refuse. I'll be back, though, quick as I can. You better, you big lug. You know, Scott, you're not just an X-Man anymore. You've taken on other responsibilities, and it isn't a question of choosing between them, either. You did that when you said I do. Fair exchange, mister. I sacrificed some of my freedom and independence, my life as a pilot, for you. The reverse has to be true if we're to make it as a family. That's something I can't remember before the X-Men. Something that outside the team I never really had. You have one now, for better or worse. Till death. It's scary, Madeline. No less so for me, my love. Stay well, Scott, and hurry home. I'll be waiting. But she doesn't actually wait, because in the annual, she has followed him to Xavier's. I think that basically just the publication timeline on all this stuff was wonky, because a couple of issues of Uncanny later, she's giving birth. So, like, the pregnancy has advanced quite a bit. The annual has a moment before they all go off to Asgard that is pretty essential, well, first, actually, there's an interesting moment where they call back to X-Men Alpha Flight. They're seeing visions of bad things happening on Asgard with Storm and Ilyana and everybody else. Rogue says, you know, Cyclops, Storm's outfit and that hammer she was swinging remind me of pictures I've seen of Thor and those Asgard folks. Remember what Loki said when we beat him last winter? He pays his debts. Only a matter of time before he settled the score. I guess he just made his move. <laughs> And Madeline says, aren't you jumping to conclusions, Wolverine? Loki swore never to do us any harm. To which Kitty responds, he isn't called the great trickster, the Norse god of mischief for nothing, Madeline. If anyone can find a loophole in a promise, it's him. And I think that's interesting because Madeline trusting that people will keep their word is a consistent part of her character and eventually will be very tied up in her pacts with Sim and Nastir. Nastir will even comment on the fact that unlike mortal men, demons always keep their promises. And so the moment here where they have to be like, yeah, but he's literally Loki, so he was probably lying, <laughs> is kind of fun. Madeline, Professor Xavier's in England. Tell him what we've done and where we've gone. In my opinion, the mutant situation is desperate. We can't wait to check with him first. I hate leaving with the baby almost due, which is, again, how we're able to place this in the title. But this establishes that X-Men Alpha Flight was last winter. So I think that that story just came out way later than it was supposed to, basically, is the gist. Sure, yeah. I understand. Those kids are counting on you. Don't worry, Scott. I'll be all right. But how will you get to Asgard? Yada, yada. They figure out how to get to Asgard. They are all about to head out when Rachel walks in in her new Phoenix costume, declaring herself Phoenix. 
Scott still doesn't know that she's his daughter and is really offended, but they don't have time to argue about it. Scott says, your stylized bird image. It's the same as the phoenix symbol worn by Jean Grey. I'd appreciate you're wearing something different. <laughs> the outfit and the name, Cyclops, says Rachel. I mean to keep them both. I'm sorry it upsets you, but it's also none of your concern because she's pissed about Madeline, remember? <laughs> You're married, remember? You may be leading this mission, but you're retired from the X-Men. She's right, Scott. Isn't she? Says Madeline. And Scott says, sure, and puts his visor on. <laughs> Kitty asks Madeline to look after Lockheed, which is cute. And as they're all going off, Kitty thinks, Ray, how could you be so dumb? You know Jean was Cyclops' first love. In your timeline, they were your parents. But in this one, she died. Scott married Madeline. They're going to have a baby. Are you deliberately trying to hurt him? As they disappear, we get this very foreboding panel of Madeline holding Lockheed in the smoke. Goodbye, Scott. Oh, Lord. Why all of a sudden am I so afraid I'll never see him? We'll never be happy together ever again uh and they're not ever happy they're together really not again. <laughs> this has to be ever. i imagine around the moment when chris found out about x factor right yeah it has to be definitely because it's like madeline's story just goes in a totally different direction after this moment. abruptly like you kind of yeah. think it's gonna do one thing and then the next time we see it they're like not as functional as they were before they're really struggling as a couple it's very ominous as you say we know something bad is gonna happen and actually it turns out that a lot of really bad things are gonna happen terrible things are about to the unfold. worst things that you could possibly imagine happen <laughs> <laughs> We next see Madeline in Uncanny X-Men 200, the trial of Magneto, where all of the X-Men are in Paris for the trial. Gabby Holler is defending Eric. Charles is there. Freedom Force brought Magneto in. Fenris attacks the trial. Go back to the Fenris episode for more on this storyline. But meanwhile, an ocean away... <sighs> Madeline Pryor, Cyclops' wife of over a year. So again, Chris giving you, this time scale's not sliding too much, baby. I'm going to tell you exactly how much time has passed. <laughs> Madeline Pryor, Cyclops' wife of over a year, wakes alone in the sprawling mansion that houses Charles Xavier's school for gifted youngsters and serves the X-Men's secret headquarters. It's expected that the trial will reach its climax today when Magneto himself takes the stand. That report was from correspondent Neil Conan, which that's fun, right? Because it's a foreshadowing of Neil Conan before Fall of the Mutants. He is, of course, a real person who Claremont was friendly with, but it's a fun wink given that Madeline and Neil Conan will come to know each other quite well in that story. <laughs> the time is 11 minutes past the hour. This is NPR's Morning Edition. I'm Bob Edwards. Coming next from Tallahassee, bad news, getting worse. I feel so out of it. Madeline is heavily pregnant now ready to pop at any moment she is wearing a yellow maternity dress that looks a lot like i mean it's the same color as her outfits from from the ashes which i think is important yeah she continues to look great and yellow like come on oh yeah it's a great color on her i feel so out of it so helpless why hasn't scott called he and the x-men returned from asgard over a week ago chris is really trying to make all these stories fit into like an timeline, easy line. Timeline, timeline, timeline. Yeah. <laughs> 
He and the Exxon returned from Asgard over a week ago. Are things so tough over there? Is he so busy? Others have phoned. Aurora, Nightcrawler, and Kitty almost every day, bless her. Doesn't Scott want to talk to me? Has he forgotten I exist? Probably. <sighs> so, as we were just saying, the tone has changed significantly yeah. over the last week in yeah. universe. And I love that Kitty is calling her every day. Can you imagine getting a phone call from like 14 year old Kitty Pride? Like every, every day in the day. final weeks and of your like, pregnancy. And you're like, hey, have you seen my husband, husband around? Like, thanks. Remember Kitty. him? You were the maid of honor at our wedding. What's he up to? And then she <laughs> speaks out loud to baby Nathan Baby, I love your father dearly, but sometimes he can be a real jerk. And then <laughs> out of nowhere, <gasps> Corsair and Empress Lalandra appear in the middle of the kitchen and they immediately begin <laughs> interrogating Madeline about where Professor Xavier is because Lalandra has sensed through her psychic rapport with Professor Xavier that he is in grave death pain and peril and has been grievously injured. Madeline's like, He's sick? Oh no, this is terrible. He isn't here. He's in Paris. And Corsair's like, well, shit. And they immediately teleport away <laughs> to Paris. And Corsair goes, hey, Duran, Madeline. And Maggie's like, Corsair, wait, explain your... Can't, honey, no time. Zapped, and they're gone. <laughs> Maddie immediately goes, okay, I better call the X-Men and warn them that something bad is happening if they don't know already. But then all of a sudden has a massive contraction. Where the heck did that come from? I'm not due for another, ah, my baby, you're being born. And she goes into labor right there in the kitchen in the abandoned Xavier mansion with everyone else in Paris. And the star jammers now a galaxy away as they pop in to say hi to Carol Danvers before she teleports them to Paris. Oh my God. Can you imagine being Madeline Pryor? This I would go evil after this moment. You don't even have I know, to go and it's not further. even like it's far from the worst thing that's going to happen to her over the next two yeah. years. It's wild. I mean, yeah, this is time to divorce Scott immediately. Like you're absolutely you're like, oh, I'm giving birth at the Xavier Institute in an empty by myself building. on cool. the floor in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Sharon Friedlander is not even here. Like no one is home. There I is know. no one to help. Because they were they were like, nobody's gonna be here, just take it off <laughs> to like hold yeah. the help and Madeline's like what the hell? Wild. And, you know, <laughs> no time. She's just in a pinch. We don't get the follow-up until the next issue, 201. This is the famous issue featuring the Cyclops versus Storm duel. The issue is called Duel, and it opens with a big Rick Leonardi splash page. He's the guest artist on this issue. And on several issues throughout the Ramita and Silvestri periods, it's a splash page of Madeline in now a bright yellow sweater, like a cardigan, holding her baby son. Notably, and this is something that I double-checked when reading through this time, Scott and Madeline's son is not given a name until Inferno, which is so weird and just shows how much this was a I'm writing Scott out storyline. Yeah. That the kid is not even given a name on panel. And for years of publication after this, they all refer to Scott and Maddie's son, but don't 
give him a name. It's super weird. <laughs> but then he becomes Cable. Yes, but that's another story. <laughs> Go back to the Cable episode for more on that because it's really complicated. Oh, yeah. So all the X-Men are circled around her and they're all looking really happy for her, except Rachel, who looks a little perturbed, and Scott, who is looking away, looking very ashamed of himself because, yeah. And Kitty says, Madeline, you had your baby. Cyclops, you're a father. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Crazy. I cannot believe this. Absolutely yeah. crazy. Madeline is just sort of standing around with everyone. And at one point she asks Kitty to hold the baby while she talks to Storm. Yep. Kitty freaks out because much like I felt at <laughs> around this age when my aunt had a baby, I am like, I will drop and kill this baby if I am made to hold this baby <laughs> for more than five minutes. It's a very nerve-wracking experience to hold a newborn if you're not used to it you feel suddenly very very clumsy and very very responsible for another human life but so she walks <laughs> off she's like just for a minute okay okay kitty's like oh okay this isn't so hard maddie says that's the spirit kitty and walks into the hallway <laughs> where storm is waiting they're standing in front of a mirror and we see that madeline already has her banging body back <laughs> She has, yeah. in 24 hours, really bounced back and lost all the baby weight. Oh, man. Yeah. The purple skirt that she's sporting in this is nice. It's good. Yeah. And the little yellow pumps. It's a cute little outfit. I wouldn't match my pumps to my cardigan personally, but limited color palettes. It's an 80s comic. I would not be out of bed after giving birth. So uh, Traumatically on the floor? Yeah, I wouldn't either. <laughs> I know. You gotta love somebody who's just game, though. She's like having a baby just in the middle of the floor being like, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Very Claremont Dame. <laughs> yeah. When Ben Percy in 10 Lives of Wolverine had Sharon Xavier giving birth while firing a shotgun at an intruder, I was like, this is in the truest Claremont Dame tradition. Storm says, you look well, Madeline, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where the real pivot happens, where it's clear that Chris is writing trouble into paradise. It's now January 1986. February 1986 is the month that X Factor number one drops. So this is the tee up that Claremont is providing to Bob Layton's story, which we'll get to after this, in which Madeline is a horrific shrew fishwife virago who scott has no choice but to abandon yeah but here as we'll see often when claremont is writing her even when she is at her most nagging or her most unsympathetic she is the sympathetic character yeah rereading inferno this morning for the 500th time in my life but i was like let me be super refreshed yeah I was struck yet again by how insane it is to read those issues where it jumps between him and Wheezy and it's like one ongoing conversation. And in the Wheezy issues, Madeline is a mustache twirling supervillain. And in the Claremont issues, she is a Euripidean tragic heroine. And it's really kind of fascinating. The bounce back and forth is wild he can't let go of this character he really loves her yeah no matter what editorial fiats come in he's going to make sure you see her point of view 
She says to Storm, I'm fine, Aurora, strong as an ox and tough as nails. Heck, I walked away from a crash and burning 747. I can survive anything. Got to admit, it's certainly nice to look down and see my toes again. I'm glad the X-Men made it home safe. From the radio and TV reports, Paris sounded pretty rough. Is it true about Professor Xavier that he won't be coming back? I fear so, and it appears our former archfoe Magneto means to take his place. Goodness. What is wrong, Madeline? I sense great rage, barely held in check. Why are you so angry? Do you have any idea what happened here? I've been away and out of touch for quite a while. I knew you were pregnant, little more. I was so happy. In the beginning, it was like a storybook, complete with the classic ending. They lived happily ever after. Scott came back to the X-Men because he felt he was needed. I followed from our own home in Alaska because I wanted us to be together for the birth of our child. He and the X-Men went off to Asgard to rescue you, and I was left on my own. Storm looks kind of ashamed because, well, she was the one that they did have to go rescue. No problem, I coped. Always have, always will. But then you all returned, materializing in France, for heaven's sake, and Kitty phoned, you phoned. Almost everyone called to see how I was, except my husband. Not a word, not a peep. He had more important things on his mind. I gave birth to my son on this floor. I was lucky. Almost before I realized I was in labor, I had the baby in my arms. I reached the hospital. Everything was all right. But it could have been different. My boy could have died. I could have died. I understand Scott's not being here, but he should have at least let me know he cared. He is a very private man. Such feelings are hard for him to face, much less reveal. But they are there, Madeline. He does love you very much. That's what I thought. Now, though, Aurora, more and more I find myself asking for proof. Dun, 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 dun. The next time we see her, she is in an incredibly chic mandarin collar nightgown. Yeah, I'm not sure what's happening, but it looks It's great. very Chris Claremont loves a Japanese or Chinese aesthetic in his fashion. I don't know where she got it, but she looks great. And Scott is telling her, Oh, I have to stay to lead the team. Why? Because I'm needed. Professor Xavier's gone and Magneto, the X-Men's oldest and deadliest foe. <laughs> I love that that's what it always is, though. Mm -hmm. They're always like the oldest deadliest foe is in charge of the school he says he's reformed that he promised the professor he'd take good care of the new mutants i'll just bet he will you don't believe magneto not for an instant for all we know he may have murdered professor x himself what about me i have a life of my own a career do you expect me to chuck it <laughs> okay i'm gonna try really hard to keep my cool while i say what scott says because this is my <laughs> least favorite thing that this man ever says i hate this sentence yeah it's really bad this is rough do you expect me to chuck my career i thought the baby changed all that yuck scott yikes you suck <laughs> you just went off didn't even call oh my god it's our child, chum. Our responsibility. I have skills. I can earn a living. Can you say the same? I have a responsibility to the X-Men, Madeline. There's no one else to do the job? Not Aurora? Storm has no powers. She'd be a liability in a combat situation. Oh, you suck. Listen to yourself, Scott. Are you saying you and you alone are absolutely essential to the X-Men's survival? Or... Are you afraid they really can get along without you? Is your life so hollow, your sense of self-worth so fragile that you believe you're nothing without them? What about me? What about us? My commitment to you supersedes everything. Are you telling me the same doesn't hold true in reverse? 
That's what he's saying, Madeline. And he doesn't answer. He just stands there looking away from her while she sits in silence, miserable until Storm comes up and challenges him to the duel. Yes. Because he won't step aside. Yeah. Storm's like, I got to go beat this guy's ass real quick. (laughs) He leaves Madeline. It's a beautiful shot. They're up in Storm's atrium having this whole conversation. They leave her and we see Storm descending the stairs. He's already gone. And Madeline is just standing in the sunlight, streaming down through the skylight, holding her baby. And it's just like, damn, this took a turn real quick. As the fight's playing out, and this issue is incredible, you should just read it if you haven't, we get a cut to Madeline back in the atrium with her baby. The reservations are made, baby. This time tomorrow we'll be on our way home. I want Scott to lose so he'll be coming with us, except losing will break his heart. Oh, why can't it be because he wants to instead of because he has no other choice? But none of this has any meaning to you, does it, sweet pea? So long as you're fed and warm and loved, you're happy. We should all be so lucky. And then, even though Storm has no powers, it starts to torrentially rain outside out of nowhere. Ah! Huh? The sky was perfectly clear a minute ago. Where'd this storm come from? And that's the last we see of Madeline. Scott loses the duel and because he lost, agrees to leave. Not for Madeline, but because he lost. Yeah, because it was very obvious that they do not need him right now and that he should not be there. I think that that's the lesson that I take from this issue. (laughs) Right, and like even in the annual with Asgard, they're all like, maybe you should just hang out here with your pregnant wife. Be there. Because we've got this, actually. You're retired. Like, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The following month is X-Factor number one by Bob Layton and Butch Geese. Um, This issue is a functional issue. It's designed to serve several purposes. Gene has been brought back by John Byrne in the pages of Fantastic Four with the retcon that Phoenix was never Jean. She was a copy created by the Phoenix Force who thought she was Jean. And the real Jean has been in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay this whole time. For the record, because I didn't make this clear in early episodes, Jamaica Bay is outside JFK Airport in Jamaica, Queens in New York City, not Jamaica, the island. So just FYI, (laughs) that was my like New Yorker centricism. It never occurred to me that people wouldn't know that. (laughs) anyway this story which is called third genesis which i found kind of self-aggrandizing i'm like this is no giant size x-men sir (laughs) is kind of infamous there are only five issues of bob layton x-factor before louise simonson burst into jim shooter's office with a list of about a hundred things she thought needed to be fixed about the book because louise simonson at this point is primarily an editor Shooter said, well, actually, Bob has to leave, so why don't you just write the book? Wheezy then sets about fixing all of the insane shit that Bob Layton did with the first five issues of this title. Bob Layton introduces (laughs) the Cameron Hodge character, the premise that they hunt mutants as a cover identity for actually training mutants. Yep. (laughs) All of the stuff about X Factor that doesn't really make any sense. And one of those things is that in this first issue, Warren flies away from Candy without a word when he hears that Gene has come back and Scott abandons Madeline. 
Madeline is wildly out of character in this issue, so I don't super feel a need to dwell on it, but I do think it's worth sort of remarking upon it a little bit. It opens with them in Alaska, and she's just a nasty, nagging piece of work. Scott gets distracted by a news bulletin about the Mutant Registration Act. And she's like, Scott Summers, I asked for a little help. It's your fellow mutants again, isn't it? Haven't you done enough for them already? Isn't it about time they did something for themselves? And like, this is crazy. And it's just not how this character thinks or behaves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't you think I know the only reason you came back to us at all is that you bombed out in your bid to lead the X-Men? Don't you think it hurts knowing that? Just like it hurts knowing why you married me in the first place? Because I reminded you of your old flame, the late but not forgotten Jean Grey? Madeline, please stop. That's uncalled for. No, I'm telling you what's called for. I love you, Scott, and the X-Men don't need you. Jean is dead. I'm the one who needs you. Click. She turns off the TV. Later that night, she wakes up and finds him out on the balcony staring out into the distance. She's like, Scott, it's really chilly out here. Will you come back to bed? I'm sorry for snapping at you. I don't want to lose what we have. And he goes, I don't know what we do have anymore, Madeline. And like the way that this issue flips it so that Scott is the reasonable one and Madeline is the unreasonable one really sticks in my craw. And listen, Chris Claremont's furious about it 40 years later. So I, you know, (laughs) it's bad. Scott, I've tried to overlook a lot of things. I tried to be understanding when you weren't here for the baby's birth. I know, I should have been here, except they're in Alaska and not here where it happened, but whatever, Bob. I've even tried to deal with the fact that I resemble your dead lover. It's never been an easy thing for me to live with. It's Jean, isn't it? You're thinking about her right now, aren't you? Yes. And we get this heartbreaking panel of her turning away back into the house. The last time we see her in this issue is the page that gets shared a lot because it's the page where Cyclops abandons his family. He gets a call from Warren who explains what's going on at that moment in Alaska. Thanks for the breakfast, Maddie. I'm really sorry about last night, but we'll work it out. You'll see in a few. Oh, would you get that, Scott? Bring My hands are all wet. Hello, Warren. I, how are you? I, uh, but how can that be? It's impossible. How? Scott? Yes, yes, I'll be there. Um, Bye. Darling, what is it? What did Warren want? He, uh, needs me to meet him in New York. Today. Well, tell him you can't make it. I can't do that, Maddie. Scott Summers, if you walk out that door, don't bother coming back. I'm sorry, Maddie, I have to go. And she cries into her dish towel. Uh, This sucks. (laughs) For a couple of reasons. This sucks. One is that the relentless use of a Y that I see online in Maddie's name is because it's spelled that way in this issue. And so can we please agree on Maddie with an (laughs) IE? I get that these panels are famous, but they're from like one of my least favorite Madeline Pryor issues. This was the moment that I was done with Scott Summers forever as a young person reading these comics. It wasn't until (laughs) Grant Morrison that I even liked the character at all again, because Grant writes him as a philandering piece of shit who hates himself. And I'm like, okay, well, this comic (laughs) gets that he sucks, right? So that was interesting. And then I could like him again because it was like (laughs) him learning to be a better person, right? Right, right. 
Yeah, I don't know what my feelings on Scott were. I think maybe I just kind of didn't have any for a long time. As many times, I'll just be like, your wife is so cool. <laughs> so like the straight men that I meet, I'm like, your wife is amazing. <laughs> She's so cool. So I always kind of had that relationship with him, I think. And then just as time went on, I was like, God, you poor son of a bitch. Like you have truly, truly just been kicked down the staircase of life. <laughs> like. And this is the page that Chris Claremont said to me recently made him write off Scott Summers as a character forever. He's like, they broke the character. There's no yep. fixing him after this scene. You can't fix this. Yeah, it's nuts. After this, it's like, yeah, he sucks. There, It's kind of interesting, too, because you were talking about Wheezy and how Wheezy writes Madeline and I'm like that's kind of cl how Claremont writes Scott right so yes like, that's why we do get this kind of incongruent style yeah the whiplash is interesting because in the Wheezy issue Scott is much more sympathetic to Madeline's plight and Madeline is a total <laughs> monster this is we're talking about Inferno again whereas yeah. in the Claremont issues Madeline has gone crazy but is like a tragic figure and yeah. Scott is a shitheel who's like only starting to realize he's a shitheel. <laughs> so yeah, that's part of the whiplash too, is that Claremont's like, fuck this guy. I will say that if you go all the way back, listeners, to the Cyclops episode, Scott Summers featuring Jay Edidin, early in the run of this podcast, Jay's autism reading of Cyclops, which now is just canon to me in my brain, because I found it very convincing makes this scene make a lot more sense to me. And I talked about this a little bit with my dad when my dad was on the show because my dad is on the autism spectrum and my dad identified a lot with Cyclops and this was the scene that made him kind of want to stop reading comics because like, and he kept up for, you know, about 10 more years, but this was where he really kind of lost the love because he was so offended and upset by this. It's interesting looking back because very literally she says to him, if you walk out, don't come back. And if you interpret him as someone who can't help but take literal instructions like that, literally, and I've seen this dynamic play out in arguments between my parents throughout my life where my mother has been speaking figuratively, that's hard. And that makes it slightly more understandable to me. It is also worth noting that early in the wheezy run of X Factor, Scott does try to reach out to Madeline we find that Sinister has erased all record of her existence and left a decoy of some poor woman who's never accounted for, a redhead whose body is too heavily decomposed to be identified, but who is apparently the woman killed in such and such incident. So Scott believes she's dead and that his son has vanished into the ether. There's no record of the baby either. Everything is gone. So the plot makes sure that he can't reach out to her but this moment is really it's rough and it's like 10 issues before he even tries so yeah while he's not telling gene that he's married and has a child yeah which yeah. is also they don't tell crazy gene. it's like what is wrong none of them you? tell gene i know and then she's like wow i can't help but feel that everybody's i don't know fucking lying to me <laughs> and they're all just like oh why she, do you feel that way she's not telepathic when she comes back like her telepathy has been suppressed 
Yeah. So she's like, well, you're all keeping something from me. And they're like, no, what makes you, you think that? You all look very sketch. You look sketch as fuck, actually. There's a great moment where she and Scott are trying to get a hatch open on an aircraft. And he calls her Maddie with an IE, I should note. She's like, who's Maddie? And he's like, uh, someone who knows how to open a hatch, which like true. If you go back to the honeymoon issue with the squid, <laughs> she did know how to open a hatch in a <laughs> crisis situation. But yeah, no, it's insane. The whole thing's insane. Scott's behavior in this era is completely insane. And luckily we don't have to think about it for a while. Yeah. Five months later in Uncanny X-Men 206, in the middle of the issue, we see a cut to the San Francisco Memorial Hospital, the ER, and a redheaded woman who's not identified, but who readers recognize as Madeline, probably because like she has Maddie's haircut and red hair and is wearing a green flight suit. So like, you know, if you've been paying attention, you recognize the character. Multiple gunshot wounds, notify surgery in the blood bank. Who is she? No ID. Lister is a Jane Doe. She got a chance, Doc? It's a miracle she made it this far. We'll do our best, but I doubt she'll last the night. That is crazy. It's out of nowhere with no explanation. We see in the pages of X Factor around this time that this is when Sinister has erased all record of her or whatever. But the body in Alaska is not her. She is alive and well in San Francisco but in a really bad way and unlikely to survive. We don't hear from her again until almost a year later in Uncanny X-Men 215, which opens with one of my favorite sequences. Same, same, same. I love this. This is just gorgeous. Yeah. It's a dream sequence, and whenever Madeline has a dream sequence, boy howdy. <laughs> it's some of Claremont's best work, honestly. I truly do believe. It hits the same kind of poetic, epic poetry tone that his magic miniseries hits. Mm-hmm. He's just allowed to get like fully Shakespearean or Greek tragedy or whatever and just start going off. And it's always so beautiful. Yeah. This is drawn by Alan Davis, which is also a treat always. Yep. We open with a sequence of a plane, a 747 crash landing on an airport landing strip. I dream. I remember. I live. San Francisco International Airport, gateway to the Pacific. Approaches a real terror over mountains than the bay. Lots of tricky winds and cities all over the place. A night landing doesn't make things any easier. Aircraft's a 747-200B. 70 meters nose to tail, 60 wingtip to wingtip. Weighs in at 375 tons. Cockpit stands over four stories above the ground. Full load. 387 passengers. 16 crew members. So many lives in my hands. Normally the Boeing's a pussycat, not this time. No, hydraulics, two engines gone, and a third blows as we cross the runway threshold. I'm suddenly flying a brick with pretensions. Crossway, that's a funny line. <laughs> Come on, Maddie, but yeah. It's funny. She's funny. She's witty. <laughs> Crosswind shunts us sideways. I try to correct. No time, no power, no strength. I shriek with rage as we fall, trying to haul the wing up through sheer force of will. Wasted effort. 
Tanks rupture, hull splits wide, burning fuel sprays the main cabin. The screams begin. I'm not going to describe this sequence because you just need to read it, but the passengers are dying in horrific agony, and we watch a lot of it happen. Yeah. We skid down the runway, my plane tearing herself apart. Fire and rescue units rush our way. They're too late. Cargo lets go. I learn later it was illegal. Military supplies being smuggled to some third world killing ground. That's what makes the explosion so spectacular. All I know are flames all around me and voices mercifully cut short. Except in my head, where they'll never die until I do. Madeline, her flight suit in tatters, walks forward out of a Phoenix Raptor emerging from the exploding plane. Yeah! My name is Madeline Pryor. This was my first command. Yeah, <laughs> this is good comics. This is so, this is about as good as comics get, baby. Like, yeah. that's some shit <laughs> right there. Yeah, especially since we've been proven that Madeline is not Jean. And seeing this kind of, like, phoenix come up around her, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> like, Wait a gall darn <laughs> minute, right? Yeah, because, as we know... This crash occurred at the exact instant that Jean Grey died on the moon. Allegedly. I knew it couldn't be a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Paramedics take me in hand, as surprised as I am to discover how little I'm hurt, and off we go, hospital bound. I close my eyes, but the flames dance in my mind, brighter and fiercer than they had in reality, forming crazy patterns, singing a mad song, a bird made of stars rising forever from its ashes. I shove it away. I can't relax. I keep struggling. I have to get out. Something is terribly wrong. More than the crash so long ago, a past I thought buried. I feel as though I've lost something terribly, infinitely, irreplaceably precious. And then we see inside the car and we realize that this is not an exact retelling of events because the paramedics are Arclight and Scalpunter. Yes. Who we as readers have just met in the Mutant Massacre, which just happened. like Which happened not too long ago. <laughs> literally two issues prior is the end of Mutant Massacre, 213, where Betsy joins the team. So we recognize these characters immediately. Scalpunter is the character now known as Grey Crow Grey because Crow. the name Scalpunter is, I think, intentionally provocative on Claremont's part. Because in reality, scalp hunters were white men who hunted Native Americans. But because of the perception that it is a negative stereotype of Native Americans, like the marauders in general, there's an interesting repeated beat where a lot of them are from genocided populations and have code names that refer to the methods of genocide enacted upon them. And then they go on to commit genocide against mutants. It's a very complicated like what are you exactly saying i'm not sure but it's interesting right Arclight, although she's later given a jewish name philippa sontag in a handbook she's drawn looking asian in these early issues depending on the artist and the Arclight airstrikes over vietnam notably factor into Forge's backstory. So I think she's meant to be Vietnamese, probably. And then Scalp Hunter is a Native American who is using this nom de guerre that references 
the white bounty hunters who hunted down Native Americans. So just weird, interesting characters. Point is, they shouldn't be the paramedics in the car. No. <laughs> and Madeline suddenly realizes it too, because she looks at Arclight and says, my baby, where's my baby? What have you done with my son? Scalp, she's awake. And Maddie smacks her right whack. across the face. Gotta love a whack sound effect. Bursts through the back of the truck, rolls out onto the street and runs. I bust the door and the street makes a mess of my clothes. Don't mind much. I learned when I started flying, any landing you walk away from is a good one. Reality shifts, different outfit, not my airline uniform, different night. Years later than the crash, winter instead of summer. Same city though, San Francisco. The medics are after me. Names pop into my head, Arclight, Scalp Hunter, Cyclops. The last is Scott Summers, my husband. She's hiding behind a dumpster. And this, we can assume, is what actually happened to her when they tried to kill her. Why isn't he here by my side when I need him most? She leaps out from behind the dumpster and slams Arclight over the head with a trash can lid, which is fun. <laughs> Classic. It's because of him, those marauders said, that they grabbed me and my son. They won't keep either of us. Skirt has nice moves. They won't save her. I'll simply slap the ground and set up a series of shockwaves that'll bring Ms. Pryor down. Very nice, Arclight. And it'll be Scalp Hunter's pleasure. Click, clack. To finish the job. Boom. <laughs> and he shoots Madeline right in the head. He sure does. The panel shatters. It's really beautifully drawn. Yeah. Dream ends. Memories end. Life ends. This comic rules. This comic fucking rules. <laughs> Holy wow. Yeah. I forgot about this one. It was like kind of, it's kind of between, right? Yeah. It's like kind of her bridge. She's going from Scott to Outback X-Men. From Scott's wife to Claremont Dame Outback X-Men Girl Friday. Yeah. Like this is sort of the pivot point. This is also notably the issue where we find out that Sarah Gray's home has been destroyed and she's missing. And so is her husband and her children. R.I.P. Sarah Gray. There's an interesting parallel there too, right? Where it's like extremists attacked Scott's family. They also attacked Jean's family. While they were doing weird stuff with X Factor. <laughs> yes. And not paying attention to their loved ones. Seriously. A little later in the issue, Madeline wakes up in the hospital in San Francisco. Patient was admitted as a Jane Doe. We haven't identified her since. Suffering from multiple gunshot wounds. Initial prognosis was pretty bleak. Severe trauma, massive blood loss. Nobody thought she'd last the night, but she surprised us. In fact, physically, she's well on the way to recovery. Unfortunately, she's maintained this deep comatose state, resisting all efforts to bring her out of it. We've done all we can for her, and we need the bed space, especially since, as a Jane Doe, the state picks up the tab. So... Next week, we'll be transferring her to a custodial facility. And that's when Madeline wakes up. She goes, <laughs> Julie, it's your Jane Doe. Glory be, she's waking up. Am, am I alive? Very much so, and quite well, too. I'm Dr. Schwartz. This is Dr. Duane, and we're very glad to meet you, Ms. Pryor. My name is Madeline Pryor. That is the last we see of Madeline until several months later in Uncanny X-Men 221, which is the first appearance of Mr. Sinister. Oh, <laughs> oh no. 
that guy. He is really pissed that the Marauders have failed to kill Madeline Pryor, and he is reading them the Riot Act. I forge you into one of the deadliest fighting forces the world has ever seen. I offer power beyond imagination, wealth beyond the wildest dreams of avarice, if only you serve me and do so well. Yet when I set the simplest of tasks, the execution of this woman, Madeline Pryor, you botch it. How then can I expect you to fare against such heroes as the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, or our most dangerous foes, who time and time again you have failed to eliminate the X-Men? Sabretooth is pissed, attacks him, they're all really pissed, and he stresses... You have one more chance. You got to go back and find this woman because I hear she's awake. (laughs) You got to go kill her right now. And I don't want to hear any excuses. And they're like, yes, boss, and go off to kill her. Luckily, the X-Men arrive in San Francisco because Madeline, upon waking up, immediately called the (laughs) X-Mansion. Smart cookie. Your mess. This is all your mess. Come get me. She's trying to find Scott and her baby because the baby's gone. Scott is gone. She doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Wolverine is like, we're here, Havoc, because I got a call from your brother's wife. Real angry, real scared, demanding to know why Cyclops dumped her and took their baby. And Alex is like, that's crazy. Scott went, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. We're playing cagey because she said she was nailed by Scalp Hunter and Arclight. Marauders? Gold stuff for you. Psylocke starts looking around. And that is when the Marauders attack the hospital. This is a wild sequence. There is a moment that I had forgotten about when Rogue kicks in the door to Maddie's hospital room and Scalp Hunter is grabbed Maddie by the hair and is holding a gun to her head. And there's a nurse who is just dead against the wall with a bullet in her skull. Yeah, violence, these guys. Crazy, yeah. I mean, the Marauders are really awful. They're terrifying, yeah. They're really scary. A lot of them live on Krakoa now, but it's this era, they were like the scariest. They're terrifying. They were truly like the scariest villains that had ever appeared in this comic. They kill indiscriminately and they like doing it. They're like, hell yeah, we get stuff. Yeah. I'm too late to save Madeline's nurse, poor gal. Give it up, scalp hunter. Because like this random woman is just fully dead. After he knocks Rogue out, he goes, your turn, Red. Your turn, Red. (laughs) And turns to kill Madeline. And she says, like blazes and slams her hospital tray into his forehead. Yeah. (laughs) Ain't you the feisty little sweetheart? Almost ashamed to punch your ticket, but Sinister gave the word and I ain't about to cross him. Why? Who are you people? What do you want from me? We already got what we want. You're just a loose end. Relax, ma'am. Simply let things happen. Fight hard as you can. It won't make any difference in the end. Ah! And then he shouts because Dazzler has shot a laser through the window and blasted him, which is fun. This is a cute mutant circuit moment because Dazzler never used to be able to shoot lasers like a gun, but Claremont has leveled up her power specifically in that when she connects telepathically with Betsy, Betsy is able to direct her and pinpoint her to specific locations where she can then blast a laser like a sniper. It's a fun little thing that they learned during their battle with the Juggernaut when the Juggernaut thought he had killed Dazzler, iconically, famously, when he revealed that he was a huge Dazzler (laughs) fan. (laughs) 
it's like their fastball special. They are having a great time teaming up. So the X-Men battle the Marauders for a while, and then we get perhaps Maddie's coolest panel of all time, which is after Scrambler has scrambled Wolverine and Havoc. Scrambler is one of the Marauders. He's Korean. He has the power if he touches you to basically make your superhuman powers implode on themselves. So Havoc and Wolverine are fully out of commission. And Scrambler says, all dead, all gone. Oops, I thought you'd fall the whole way, Havoc. No matter, you're balanced pretty precariously. When you wake, you'll probably fall over. That'll do the trick. Now it's Maddie's turn. What a rip. Scalp and Saber couldn't do the job. But Scrambler, teehee, the whack. Maddie pistol whips him with one of Scalp Hunter's guns, <laughs> which she has picked up off the floor. And there's a great panel. She's in her hospital gown, by the way. Yeah. He is laying back on the floor, looking up at her like, what the fuck? And she points the gun at him <laughs> like she's been pointing a gun her whole life and says, sorry, creep, I don't die easy. Can you say the same? <laughs> he can't. <laughs> he can't. Canonically. <laughs> it is so good. I think about this panel all the time. Yeah. Sorry, creep, I don't die easy. Can you say the same? To me, that is like the epitome of Claremont Dame dialogue. Like if there was a chum or a lover or a bunkie <laughs> or a sweetie in there, it would be yeah. like 1000% it. But creep is up there too. Sleezoid, there's like a few that it could be, but man, <laughs> man, that's good. Arclight then causes a big earthquake, so everybody has to flee. Rogue grabs Madeline and flies off with her. And Madeline says, all those people endangered, some hurt, even killed. Because of me? Right so. But why, Rogue? Having a clue, sugar. <laughs> Rogue's not one to ask. Rogue. Why? Marrying to the X-Men family? I guess you catch a lot of X-Men grief, which is a funny <laughs> line. They're then attacked by Polaris, <laughs> who no one knew yet was possessed by Malice. She's in her new Malice look. I don't believe this, Polaris. How could you be working with the Marauders? Silly girl, I lead the Marauders, which is a big reveal. <laughs> Maddie ends up falling into the drink, which, by the way, now that I'm thinking about it, is another reference to Vertigo. Yeah, totally. Madeline. Like, Maddie falls into the San Francisco Bay. She sure does. And Longshot has to fish her out. <laughs> Rent that movie. It's on Amazon Prime. Go watch it. It's yeah, you have to. Madeline, who doesn't know who Longshot is, goes, it's a miracle I didn't drown. <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah, that's sort of what he does. That was lucky, wasn't it? <laughs> that's when the big confrontation between Lorna and Alex takes place. And I mentioned that because Alex's arc here is in parallel and obviously important to Madeline's arc. Yep. Lorna, listen to me. Malice is evil. Your will is stronger. Fight her influence. Don't let her rule you. Silly boy, save your breath. Little Lorna's pure malice through and through. She loves it, Alex. We were made for each other. Oh, look, a flare. How pretty. Scalp Hunter's way of telling us Madeline Pryor shoveled off this mortal coil. Perhaps some X-Men as well. No! I could send you to join them, my darling. Easy as sin. But so much more wicked, don't you think? To spare you. My magnetic power will let you down easy, tormented by the knowledge of what I've become. Happy landings, lover. Of course, you could always try to stop me, the way you did before. 
Blast me out of the sky to kingdom come while you've got the chance. Can you do that, Alex? Slay the woman you profess to love? Lorna, please come back. Don't make me. If you don't, then whatever happens afterwards, you'll be in part to blame. <laughs> Alex, whose whole thing at this stage and like throughout his character history is that he hates his mutant power because he doesn't want to use it to hurt people. Yep. And he, in tiny font, Tom Morzikowski letters the fuck out of all these issues. Yep. As he always does, but like these moments where like it's to show that they are just lost. The font is so teeny tiny and he says, I love you, forgive me. And then screams Lorna as he sends a killing blast right at her. Nice try, lover, but my shields can handle even your best shot. Still, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> you failed to kill me. What matters is you tried. She flies away, leaving him in despair. I love it. <laughs> it's so good. And it sets the stage for everything that then happens with him and Madeline through the inferno, right? Yep. <laughs> oh, I love these two. This is where things get really fun, right? Is having This is Madeline. where things get really fun because I love them together. So do I. It's one of those things where it's like, okay, is this healthy? Maybe not. Is this a good idea? <laughs> Definitely not. Is it the idea that these two characters would have and pursue? Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's in the long run kind of the best thing that happens to either of them until it gets fucked up. Yeah. And that's what's really sad. And that's why it's nice in the present to see that maybe they might get another shot at it with both their eyes wide open. You yeah. Know? And I'm intrigued to see where that goes after Dark Web because I love Alex. Yeah. I am also a huge Lorna fan. Yep. I don't think they should be together. Not really. <laughs> People have said to me, they're like, you acknowledge that Alex is not a good catch romantically. Why do you want him to be with Madeline? And it's because they complement each other well. And she's like, listen, I love her with all my heart. She's not exactly the most eligible candidate at the speed dating session either, right? They've yeah. both got their shit. There's something about what they each bring out of the other that's really beautiful. And that's why the way it gets twisted in Inferno is so tragic. Yeah. Because the issue after this is omens and portents uncanny 223 which is an issue guest drawn by kerry gamel i believe it's his only issue of x-men he's best known for luke cage and iron fist stuff in terms of marvel comics he was also a superman artist and for x-men fans he drew the fallen angels miniseries with joe duffy well, most of it anyway. I think you drew like three quarters of it. I don't remember. I'd have to check. <laughs> he has a very distinctive style. I like that it's a fill-in on this issue because I think the way that he draws her ruminations is really smart. Madeline is standing out on a cliff facing the ocean. It's not a great vibe. Like, she's clearly <laughs> not well right yes i love alex here though right because mm -hmm. he's like creeping up the side of the mountain and this man it's like it has to be seen to be believed very much as we just said not only does madeline look absolutely great in her flight outfit alex 
is wearing an outfit that just is the most Alex thing I've ever seen. Alex is in his tiny slutty shorts <laughs> era. And as we know, yeah. Malden loves a summer's boy in tiny slutty shorts. Yep. He's wearing tiny green jogging shorts out for a jog with a matching green headband. Tall socks, very tall, like tube socks that he is wearing that I love. Completely shirtless. Much as Cyclops's ass was the main character for one of our previous issues, Alex's ass is the main character as he's climbing up this rock. <laughs> it's just so funny. Just like, yes, this is where he wants to be in life. Climbing up the side of a mountain, reaching forlornly towards a damsel right is like yes. exactly what alex wants to be doing at all times and this is this allows him to do it <laughs> before alex turns up we get our first wide awake rumination from madeline's perspective on her life it's also a recap claremont felt it was important to catch people up in case this was their first issue this issue is what establishes Madeline's new status quo as the X-Men's human friend who's helping them out despite her better judgment because she feels an obligation to. And this is why that X-Factor conversation really pisses me off in X-Factor 1 because the way she talks about mutants is not how she feels in any issue before that issue or afterward. And it's kind of like, yeah. Bob Layton, no, that's just not who this character is. But in any case, she's holding a copy of the San Francisco Chronicle. Mutant battle rips downtown. X-Men, city saviors or destroyers? <laughs> Mutants. The dirtiest of words these days means you're different, an outcast, feared at best, hated at worst, hounded, hunted, always a target to be hurt in body and soul, too often killed. She isn't one. She just married into the tribe. Hasn't made a difference. She's marked, same as the rest. And that's an example of Claremont using the Jewish analogy very directly, which he does sometimes. How did I come here? Why me? What did I ever do to deserve this? Perhaps the fates know, or God. Trouble is, they'll never tell. Madeline Pryor. Pilot. Strong. Self-reliant. Good at her profession. A born survivor. A solo act, and content with it. Till she met Scott Summers. Didn't matter that he was mutant and X-Man. She loved him, wed him, bore his son. The happiness lasted a year. Then, without warning, he left home. No real explanation, but he wouldn't meet her eyes. A secret, she knew. Something bad. No word after that, no answer when she tried to reach him in San Francisco. The marauders stole her child, left her for dead. She was in a coma for months. When she awoke, she discovered she'd ceased to exist. She knew who she was, but there was no proof. Every scrap of documentation about her had vanished. She'd become a non-person. There's nothing left, not even my wedding ring. And that's interesting, right? That they took her fucking wedding ring because they put it on the corpse they left behind in Alaska. <laughs> Marauders. Every possession obliterated as completely as my past. I turned to the police for help. They couldn't find any record that my baby had even been born. I thought I was crazy. The doctors, too. I was starting to believe them, wondering if the life I remembered was all a dream, some poor, lonely, psychotic's desperate wish-fulfillment fantasy, until the Marauders came after me again. The X-Men saved me. I almost wish they hadn't. She starts tearing up the newspaper and throws it off the cliff. 
Was Scott lying when he said he loved me? Didn't our marriage vows mean anything? Why hasn't he tried to find me? Doesn't he care? Stupid question. His actions are his answer. I lost him the minute he walked out my door. And I've even less hope of finding my son. He could be anywhere in the world if he's even alive. What's the point of even looking? And she stares down in a very concerning way into the ocean off the cliff. That's when Alex jogging by <laughs> in his slutty <laughs> little outfit. Just casually jogging by. Not far away, Alex Summers chalks up his daily miles. This is his way of dealing with pangs of the heart, with pain of the flesh. Occasionally, it even works. <laughs> Someday, somehow, Lorna, I'll find a way to break the Marauder's control over you. We'll be together again to live happily ever. Uh-huh. That's Madeline. What's she doing? She's standing right at the edge. Oh, my God. Does she mean to jump? Madeline, don't! Read this part. because you were... Yeah. Take it slow. Take it easy. Step at a time. Last thing you want to do is spook her. Why are you way out here? What's wrong, Maddie? They're on Alcatraz, by the way, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> They're on Alcatraz. Yeah, why not? What's wrong? Alex, you've got to be kidding. I thought I'd found someone to share my life with. Instead, I'm drowning in grief and terror and pain. People are trying to kill me. They've erased the fact of my very existence. They've stolen my baby. And I haven't a clue of the reason, except that it's bound up with my husband and the life he leads. I'm no mutant, Alex. I'm not an X-Man, but I'm part of your war. I'm one of the non-combatants who always gets maimed and slaughtered by the bullets aimed at you. My whole life I've fought to stand alone, to depend on nobody but myself, only now I can't. So you want to quit? Human beings can't survive in your league, Alex, so what's the sense of even trying? Hey lady, you're not the only one who's suffering, or who wanted to have a normal life, only to see it blown to bits. The woman I love, Lorna Dane, leads the Marauders. She hovered right above where you're standing and dared me to knock her out of the sky. This is hilarious to me because this is not the same thing, Alex. You're like drawing no. false equivalents. It's <laughs> fine. He's funny. He continues to yell. <laughs> she said if I didn't, I'd be partially responsible for everything she did afterwards. I knew it wasn't really Lorna speaking, that she was under the control of another marauder, Malice. Lorna wasn't the villain, Madeline. She was a victim. Malice loved it. Watching me squirm made her day. I faced Hobson's choice. Whatever I decided, either way, I'd lose. So I made my decision. I fired. Skakow! <laughs> he fires again, which is just like, chill out, buddy. We're at an 11. We need you at like a two. And watch your magnetic shield deflect my plasma blast. It's hard to say plasma and blast next to each other. Plasma blast. If worse comes to worse, all I have left of Lorna and my life together are memories. But you, Madeline, you have a child. If you give that up, what happens to him? I loved and trusted your brother, and he let me down. He wasn't there when his family needed him. I'll never forgive that, and I'll never let myself become so vulnerable again. That doesn't mean you have to stand alone. If the X-Men are anything, it's a family. I've only just begun to realize that we're strong because we stand by each other. That way we can survive anything. That way, no matter what, we'll win. You sure? Bet my life on it. Then chum, so will I. Chum! And that's the moment. <laughs> well, yeah, chum, it's good. They hug, and it's actually really cute. This is a really sweet moment because it's entirely platonic, right? He looks up and is like, oh my god, my sister-in-law is about to kill herself, and talks her off the ledge. And she's like, wow, my no good husband's kid brother is talking a lot of sense. And they really embrace as friends. And to me, this issue is the core of their relationship. 
Yeah, I think so too. It sucks that it gets twisted into something else by Nastir, but you know, that's comics, baby. Like you can't have anything nice for long, yeah. right? <laughs> and you see kind of right here, it's like the makings of everything good and everything bad between them, right? He's kind of off on his own, like- When she's like, I'll never be vulnerable again. Yeah. And he's like, that's fine. We're best friends. Good stuff will happen. <laughs> and she's like, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Storm, if you go back to the Forge episode a couple weeks back, this is when the adversary in the form of Naze is deceiving her into believing Forge is going to end the world and yada, yada, yada. So Storm's in trouble and the X-Men resolve to go and find her. Wolverine asks them all, like, are you with me? And they all go like, I am. Like, you have my butterfly and my laser and my throwing star or whatever. And Madeline says, count me in too, Wolverine. The devil I will. You're not an X-Man, Madeline. Or even a mutant. You're a civilian. This isn't your fight. Moreover, we can't spare anyone to look after you when things get rough. And what chance will I have if I'm left behind? How long till the marauders find me? You say if I come with you, I may die. If I'm left on my own, chum, I will. Miss Pryor has a point, Wolverine, says Alex. She's my brother's wife. I'll watch out for her. Blazes, have it your own way then. Let's roll. And now Maddie's part of the team, basically, which is fun. Whenever Alex says, I'll watch after her, my eyebrows do a thing like involuntarily. And people at home can't see that, but just know that it happened. <laughs> Fall of the Mutants pops off here, and she is a big help to the team, especially after Spiral blinds Dazzler with a spell. Maddie agrees to be her eyes and walks around with her and gets herself into all kinds of trouble. It's a good little showcase for her. There's a good moment where Colossus is looking around and Maddie says, anyone there, Colossus? Yet, Miss Pryor, only my imagination. Come, let us rejoin the others and save the world. How can you joke? All I want to do is run away and hide. Yet you remain. What is the point of possessing power if it is not used? And of being human if not used for good? I also am afraid, but my friends need me, and a person should always stand by those he loves. And that is an interesting moment to me just because of where their relationship goes in Inferno, right? Yes, yeah. There's a lot of setup in Fall of the Mutants for what will eventually come. And I don't know how much of that is intentional because in my conversation with Chris that I had briefly at New York Comic Con once about Maddie, he sort of intimated that Inferno was around when they figured out what the hell they were going to do with her because they knew that they had to get rid of her. And I think in these stories, he really is setting her up to be like a real member of the team. There's that mm -hmm. concept art that Chris Arendt posted once that he attributed to Mark Silvestri, but we got corrected on that. I've mentioned it on the show before. It's the one that says Indiana Jones meets Molly Dodd and shows her with a gun and like those tall boots <laughs> and stuff. Uh-huh. That was attributed apparently in some book to Mark Silvestri, but the artist George Gozum reached out to me about a year ago to show me that drawing in his sketchbook, which he says he gave to Chris Claremont 
years and years ago. And in that sketchbook, he also drew a design for Celine, in which <laughs> she had an underboob cutout <laughs> in her dress that looks a lot like the Goblin Queen design. It's possible that these pieces of concept art were in the office because Chris apparently did make copies of them and was like, these are super cool. We'll get in touch or whatever. And then they just never got in touch. This was a long time ago. And yeah, I don't know. But when I posted the art, this guy reached out and was like, wait, 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 that's my drawing. <laughs> <laughs> and he showed me the original drawing. So who knows? Yeah. So Dazzler is not really able to continue because of the mask that's been fused to her face by Spiral. They're all heading in to maybe die in this conflict with the adversary. Neil Conan's filming. This is the page where Wolverine says, remember us. And Neil Conan goes, we will, X-Men. Always. <laughs> but before that, Wolverine's like, same deal here as when we came to Dallas. This is a volunteer caper, pure and simple. Anyone can back out. No guilt, no shame. Alex says, I speak for the team, boss. Time's wasting. I'm obliged, kid. You got no brains but the heart of a grizzly. But you, Dazzler, and Miss Pryor. Dazzler jumps in and says, you just try and stop me, mister. You just try. I'm an X-Man, Wolverine. I'm with you to the end. And Madeline wraps her arms around Allie's shoulders and says, and I'll be her eyes. You two are crazy. Hey, sugar. They're just <laughs> taking after you. Wishes luck, y'all. Love to destiny, Mystique. Rogue! And she thinks, daughter, be seeing ya! <laughs> Mom! Oh my god. Then they go in, and the reality warping that the adversary is causing is like a huge, messy, nasty thing. Neil Conan is describing to his partner Manoli Weatherell and to the viewers at home what's going on. And we get a close-up on Maddie eventually. This is the flashback where we see Forge's horrible secret. Forgot to mention a civilian. Don't know if she's part of the team. A pilot named Madeline Pryor. What am I trying to prove? I was insane to come along. I'm a normal woman. I have no powers. And yet, little as I am with the X-Men, I'm less than nothing without the... Ugh! She trips over a dead soldier and falls. Stupid, clod and careless cow. Stumbling about a battlefield in the dark. Serve you right if you got yourself killed. American infantry dead. Wiped out all but one. Hey, I recognize the face. He's the guy I think the X-Men are looking for. That's Forge! Wait, it can't be. This is the war, and it ended years ago. A different Forge then, a young man. He's chanting energy like fire burning around him. The X-Men told me he was an Indian shaman, a medicine chief as well as a mutant like them. Is he casting some spell? Merciful mother, those shapes rising from the bodies. Spirits? Ghosts? Souls? Those are his friends. What is he doing? That is when he casts his horrible spell, as reported in the Forge episode. And it's mm -hmm. Madeline who screams, no. And we zoom in on her face. We see the airstrike and all of that. Havoc lays a hand on Maddie's shoulder as she watches the landscape burn and says, Madeline, it's okay. We're okay. No, Havoc. Not okay. Never again. Did you see, X-Men, what Forge did? And this moment, I think, is really key, right? Maddie just watched Forge summon a legion of demons and sacrifice the souls of his friend in an act of vengeance, and she's disgusted by it. Yeah. 
but taking notes, but disgusting. But also she now knows that's a thing you can do, right? <laughs> She's like, you know what? I don't like this at all when you do it, but I'm pretty sure that one of us could do it better. And nobody else is going to try? If I'll I try. did it, maybe... It'd be good. Just putting that out there. But she's very moral in this moment. This is before some other shit happens that really... I mean, the thing about Maddie is because this is when Claremont is making the book darker and darker and darker over time, the series of horrific villains that she encounters in her time with the X-Men, it goes from the Marauders to the Reavers to Genosha. Yeah, this is like terrifying. All of those are terrifying. At a certain point, you're like, actually, fuck humanity. Yeah. It's garbage. Like, (laughs) she just constantly has her belief in the goodness of other human beings torn away from her. Yeah. In a way that's really fascinating. Because she wants to believe the best in other people. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the more time she spends in this world, the more obvious it becomes that she's a good person, but people are bad people. And what does that mean? Yeah. And how do you defend yourself in a world where people are bad? Yeah. Wasn't she mostly just hanging out with Cyclops' parents before this? And they're Yes, just like the grandparents, right. So just like she- hanging out. <laughs> Reading Ursula Le Guin novels with Sam the Lore Lord. Exactly. Like, that's such a dream life. And then, like, the second any X-Man walks into her life, it's just trauma, trauma, trauma. Hell. Hell just opens up around her. This is the first time that that happens literally, but it's not the last time. Far from the last. (laughs) There's a really important moment here where she is the one who gives an interview to Neil Conan. Yeah. He's asking all the X-Men why they're doing this. The fall of the mutants, for context, the arc where the X-Men die on national television saving the world and are beloved as heroes for quite a while, which complicates Gyrick and Val Cooper's mutant registration project and all that other stuff because suddenly, like, the X-Men died to save everyone. So how bad can mutants be? And it's this interesting moment in mutant-human relations that gets thrown by the wayside by the time Muir Island Saga rolls around, so don't worry Real too quick. much about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't last long, but Neil Conan says, How about you, Miss Pryor? Why are you here? Where does it say, Mr. Conan, that you have to be a mutant to believe in what the X Men stand for and be willing to fight for it by their sides? What beliefs? To echo Martin Luther King, a world where people are judged by the content of their character, not by race or color or powers. We're all human beings. Why can't we be treated like it? Not freaks, not monsters, people. Be nice if that dream came true. Unfortunately, chances are none of us will be around to see it. I have a son, though, and a husband. Be nice if they could. It's a really incredible, the Martin Luther King comparison is again, like this is one of those things where it's like this comics from the eighties. Yeah. But to have people quoting Martin Luther King in a superhero comic was kind of wild. This comic comes out the month I was born. Oh. This is my birth month issue of Uncanny X-Men is Madeline and the X-Men sacrificing their lives in Dallas to save the world from the adversary. March, 1988. And I got to say, 
all of these trades came out when I was 12, right? So Inferno, From the Ashes, we talked about that in session one, but Fall of the Mutants was another one. And I read this when I was 12 and I, it was crazy because I read Inferno first. And then I went back and read these. The thing about Inferno is like, you read the Chris Claremont issues, you really feel for her. It's yeah. unbelievably tragic. Yeah. And then I go back and I'm like, wait, not only was this unbelievably tragic, she's also a great human being. Like this yeah. really, it sucks that this happened to her. It yeah. fucking sucks. Cause she believed, she believed in Xavier's dream. She believed in all of this shit. The second she got there, she was like, you know what? I'm in. And the world just conspired against her. And it turned out retroactively that it had been conspiring against her from the moment of her birth. Yeah. That she never had a chance. She yeah. never, ever had a chance. But despite that, despite being programmed by Mr. Sinister, she chose to do the right thing as many times as she could on behalf of this marginalized community that she found herself enmeshed in because of the man she loved. And that is pretty incredible. And it's why, you know, we lose something in Madeline becoming a mutant character, right? Yeah. In the same way that we lose something with the Moira X yeah. retcon. We gain things as well. Yeah. I would say that it's worth it in the long run to gain Madeline as Jean's dyadic figure, as the mutant goblin queen. To gain that is worth it. And I think to gain Moira X is worth it. But... You do lose this thing that Claremont really did believe in. The ally who shows up. Yeah. And who puts themselves on the line every time. We don't see that as much anymore in X-Men comics. And I think that's in part because we're all more cynical about whether that's possible in <laughs> yeah. 2023. Yeah, definitely. But I would like to see it more. I would like to see Stevie Hunter again. I would like to like, see Lee on, Forrester again. Yeah. I'd like to see Amanda Sefton again. Yeah, I miss them. I will say this is one reason I'm really excited for Jerry Duggan's new run of Uncanny Avengers. I hated the original Uncanny Avengers. That's no mystery to anybody who listens to this podcast. But I thought Jerry's run in it was fun. The thing that has always been tricky about Uncanny Avengers is it was in a time when mutants were completely on the back foot. And now that it is a more equitable conversation, I'm really interested to see how that will shake out. I like that Steve Rogers gives a shit about mutants. I think that's cool and good. I like that Tony Stark, even though he's a fucking asshole, gets that Emma Frost has a point yeah. and respects that. And as much as he's going to keep tabs on them and be like, hey, Firestar, if you want to give me intel, I'll pay you for it. He's also looking out for mutants in a way that he doesn't have to. Yeah. Carol Danvers, who was a friend to the mutants and then was not a friend to the mutants. <laughs> yeah. Is also doing that now. Kelly Thompson just did that whole arc where she teams up with a bunch of X-Men characters. It was actually a nice setup for Kanon to be on Uncanny Avengers because it was this Avengers character meeting her and being like, so we've like never met. Like it kind of elided the weirdness of like Carol yeah. knows Betsy and new Asian Betsy, but is aware that she doesn't know Kanon. It was kind of a funny moment. And she was just like, Hi, I'm Conan. I'm Psylocke. It's fine. Let's move on. We have to save yeah. people, which is like very <laughs> Conan of her. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel has been a true delight, hasn't it? Just so many good character interactions. I just have trouble with Carol. 
Sure. And I wish I didn't, but I do. Fair enough. Yeah. Actually, like I was struck rereading the Maddie stuff. The Green and Pleasant Land Genosha arc. That's my favorite Carol ever mm-hmm. is the Carol in Rogue's head who saves Rogue. Yeah. When Rogue is molested by those magistrates and Carol rises to the top of her psyche and is like, girl, you need to let me front right now. You need to let me have this. I can take it. And for the next several issues, it's just a Carol Danvers and Wolverine adventure, but she's rogue. Yeah. But it's Carol. That's my favorite Carol. And I think just something about the character in recent years hasn't quite worked for me. And it's not Kelly Thompson's fault. I just, I don't know quite what it is. But I liked this crossover arc with the brood. I've quite enjoyed it. I'm excited to see what Kelly Thompson does next after she's done because she's ending her Captain Marvel run at issue 50. That's right. That's going to make a nice telephone book sized Omni, yeah. omnibus that's just going to sit happily. And good for her. That's a very impressive run. But yeah. I'm intrigued to see what she does next because for some reason, just I, I can't quite connect with Carol these days. I love it. It's really good. <laughs> it went a long way to see Carol back hanging out with the X-Men again because that's, that's right. the Carol I love most is like their buddy Carol. Anyway. Yep. I digress. The point is, it's nice to see some of that coming out again in the Krakoa era. And I think it's about to be tested because the Fall of X storyline seems like it's going to be a shitty moment for Krakoa. And we're going to find out who our friends really are. Because it's one thing for humans to show up when you're a superpower now. It's another thing for Krakoa to be in crisis and your friends to show up. Yeah. And everybody is like, oh, so you want us to help now? Like, all like, we're going to see. And back in the 80s, that's what characters like Madeline and Moira and Sharon Friedlander and Tom Corsi and Stevie Hunter did. Yeah. They showed up in a moment when it was not popular to show up. Brian Braddock. I mean, like, it was something that certain characters did. And it was often because they loved someone or they had a family member or whatever. But that's true to life. Yeah. I mean, that's often why people show up as allies is because they actually have a personal investment, which is how you realize that people are people. Mm -hmm. Because we're all so self-centered a lot of the time. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, that is the thing that wakes you up, right? It's like, oh, my kid is a mutant or my husband is a mutant or my sister is a mutant. Yeah. I think that we need more of that back in and I'm glad to see it starting to re-enter the world of the X-Men now that we've had a couple years of Krakoan storytelling focused on the mutant identity. Yeah. I think it's good to have both. Anyway, at the end of Fall of the Mutants, Forge explains how the spell works and that he can work it again to banish the adversary, but it will require the sacrifice of nine souls And he can't be one of them because he has to stick around to work the magic. So Wolverine says, Madeline's a civilian too, Forge. She belongs with her husband and kid. I wish that was possible, Wolverine, but there were nine souls in the original enchantment. There have to be nine in this. I expected as much. And she turns to the camera that is live broadcasting on NPR's television network, which exists in their 616 in a huge way that everybody watches. Scotty. And that's interesting because she's never called him Scotty before. Yeah, I've never seen that. But Scotty, right? Like Vertigo. From Vertigo. Let's keep it going. <laughs> Scotty, wherever you are, I wish you all the best. Find our son. Keep him safe. 
Raise him well. I love you. Goodbye. And she steps into the circuit to become part of the star that Forge creates that banishes the adversary for a thousand years. Allegedly. But he comes really. back in the 90s. <laughs> but like, you know, but in Chris Claremont's idea of it, Luckily, after everyone is left, Roma, the Omniversal Guardian, descends from the heavens and resurrects the X-Men and Madeline. That's when Storm and Wolverine decide it's time to implement Plan Omega, which is something that the two of them had been discussing because of the fact that since the mutant massacre, the Marauders have constantly been hunting them. Yeah, so, they keep showing up and they're just They like, keep showing go. up. And Storm and Wolverine, who found Sarah Gray's destroyed home, assume that the Marauders killed her. Yeah. The idea is like, as long as we're out there and they're after us, they're going to start going after our loved ones too. So we need to pretend that we're dead, take this opportunity, the whole world saw us die, we stay allegedly dead and work from the shadows to advance mutant interests and defeat our enemies. And this is the beginning of the Outback era because Roma sends them directly to the Outback and gives them a special gift, the Siege Perilous. <laughs> which won't be a big deal. It really doesn't come up. You'll never hear about it again. Just kidding. So <laughs> as they're discussing Plan Omega, there's a good moment. I think this is before the Inferno plan materializes because it definitely feels like at this moment, Chris is positioning her to like be a real member of the team. And he had tried to do that with Amanda Sefton previously. I think he really wanted there to be a human ally on the team. I think that was important to his conception of like what the X-Men should be. Dazzler's like, it's too unfair to our family and friends to pretend to be dead. And Betsy says, how do we protect them if we don't do this? Rogue says, which is better, Blondie? Hurting them this way or burying them because they got chopped in the crossfire? I oh. love Claremont's rogue <laughs> yeah, so much. You have She's just a so way punchy. With words, rogue. <laughs> and Colossus, of course, says, "Should not the needs of the many, my friends, take precedence over the desires of a few?" Fine. Big guys, right? People says Havoc. We got a lot of scores to settle. I vote we start paying him back with interest. And Maddie, who is leaned against him and he has his arm wrapped around her, says, "If this is the way we can make a difference, please let's do it." And Roma looks upon them assembled as a team with Maddie and says, Then you are agreed, and that is for the best. I salute you, X-Men. Magnificent though you were as heroes, all a person might wish to be. Now you can do much more, because you have become legends. Next, a new beginning, Down Under. <laughs> yeah. And that's where we go next. Here we go. Here we go. X-Men, X-Men. Hey, everybody. We're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this mobile squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War and the Real-Time Arena. 
Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I for one can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. Maddie is a background character throughout this stuff, but she's very much an integral part of the team. Mm -hmm. Once they depose the Reavers and take over the Reavers' base, she is the one who sets up shop in the computer console room in the basement. She becomes the monitor room lady. And as you know from listening to any episode I've ever done with Jordan Block listeners, I love a bitch in front of some screens. I love <laughs> a woman who looks at those screens and tells the people what to do. I love Sage. I love Oracle Babs Gordon. I love that stuff. I love Sue Dibney. I love Candy Southern. I love yep. all of those women. Women who are like I can't fight as well as all of you I mean Sage and Oracle can but like they are in complicated situations yeah but like the women who are like I'm gonna sit here and tell you all what's going on and be essential in that way because I know that if I'm on the battlefield you're all worried that I'm gonna get shot in the head or whatever so yeah. I'll be here and it's a fun role for her there's a good moment in the Tiger Tiger storyline at some point, I have to have you back for a Tiger Tiger episode because I know you love Tiger Tiger. Let's do it. Oh, man. Tiger Tiger. <laughs> Jessan Hoen, Let's... you love that character. <laughs> yeah, your eyebrow and my eyebrow just did the exact same I eyebrow. said Tiger Tiger <laughs> and Sarah made such a face. <laughs> I'm like, let me back for the Tiger Tiger episode because, oh, the things I have to say. I was talking to friend of the pod, Holly Raymond, earlier because she discovered that the villains Galera from Extreme X-Men Volume 3 actually are not new as we assumed to Extreme X-Men Volume 3. Claremont had previously introduced them in a Wolverine Black, Red, and Blood story. We were trying to place that story in the timeline and she was like, Tiger Tiger's alive. Does that help? And I was like, no, baby. Tiger Tiger's always alive. Tiger Tiger can't be kept down. Queen of Madripoor, Tiger Tiger. I need to know what's up with Tiger Tiger. Where we haven't seen her since Hominus Verendi took over Madripoor, have we? I don't think so. I think like maybe the last time, God, the last time was maybe like- Marjorie Liu? It's been forever since she- It's been a up. minute. Come back, Tiger Tiger. I can't think of it. I'm not the best at Wolverine solo stuff and she's very much a Wolverine when solo stuff character. When he came back from the dead, right? Like, I think maybe was like... she was around for that with like the Mariko is back yeah. stuff too. Yeah. But I can't quite remember. But like, where is the Mariko Yoshida and Tiger Tiger and Yukio kicking ass Infinity comic? Uh, <laughs> I can't I can't handle this right now. Um, okay, yeah, we'll revisit so another time. But anyway- I'm like, Come back for Tiger Tiger, because... In the initial Tiger Tiger storyline, when Jessan is kidnapped from the bank, they end up, at the end of that story, sending the Reavers through the Siege Perilous. <laughs> and Jessan is like, I don't want to do that, because they're trying to, like, maintain their own secret. 
And it's Madeline who says, Lady has a point. She's a victim. She doesn't deserve to share the Reaver's fate. Betsy, who, like, this is when Claremont really leans into the Alan Moore characterization of Betsy from Captain Britain. It's just like, Betsy is tough as fucking nails. <laughs> and she's just like, but how can we release her knowing what she does? <laughs> <laughs> and Alex is like, maybe we have to trust people sometimes, <laughs> Betsy. Betsy's like, why not kill? <laughs> And so Roma sends Tiger Tiger back to the bank and is like, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Roma just hangs out in yeah. this era, kind of. Like, yeah. she's just around, yeah. which is funny. It's, again, like, Claremont just fucking loves Captain Britain and wants to use... Like, Roma's one of his creations, but he didn't do much with her. It's really, again, like, Alan Moore and Alan Davis and Jamie Delano who really, like, shaped the character. Mm -hmm. But he loves what they did with her. So yeah. he uses her a bunch in this era. She's such, like, a Final Fantasy character, right? Just showing up to be yes. like, you have defeated the slime and now yes. you will travel forward. And it's interesting because this is in the period where because of the legal dispute with Alan Moore, they can't use Jim Jaspers or the Fury. <laughs> right. But because Claremont created Roma... He can use Roma, right? Get in here, Roma. They can use Saturnine because she's from the Dave Thorpe issues right before Alan Moore took over. It's like that you can kind of see the legal barriers and like how they work. <laughs> yeah. Because around this time is when Excalibur starts and Saturnine is all over that from the jump. <laughs> I would die for like a full legal deep dive on the weird shit that went on there. Oh man, all of the UK stuff, right? You're just like, I yeah. mean, wasn't like Miracle Man like the most chaotic? And now it's just owned by Disney Disney, like everything else right but it's and that's why alan moore has pulled his name from all marvel products and is the original writer now because he was pissed that they bought miracle man sounds about right <laughs> fair yeah fair to bring it all back around to last week chuck austin's biggest gig as an artist was drawing some issues of miracle man because alan moore specifically asked for him because chuck austin's a great artist oh i don't even remember that i i don't think i've read miracle man in a very long time I just bought the omnibus by the original writer and I'm going to yeah. do a reread. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, sorry, Alan, I got to pick this up. It's a beautiful collected edition. Yeah. And, <laughs> and to be fair, he probably would just be like, well, I'm glad that the artists are getting paid. That's usually what Absolutely. his Absolutely, that's always been. his position. He's pissed about Washington, but he's glad Dave Gibbons is getting a check. You know what I mean? Like, the thing about Alan Moore is he seems like a really good guy at the end sure, of the day. Yeah. And so I think as angry as he is at certain companies, I don't think he begrudges the readers for wanting to read the work. <laughs> and oh God, like you should be upset about that. Like you explicitly went into like a, a company attempting to get away from DC and it still got bad, bought back. And it still DC, got bad for so. you. Like, you know. Like if everything gets bought by, you know, DC or Marvel in the end and then like Alan Moore's just like little black <sighs> rain cloud. <laughs> like, I do feel bad for the people who are at Marvel and DC now who had nothing to do with the decisions that fucked over Alan Moore who get the blowback when he talks about it. But at the same time, I'm like, I get why he's pissed though. Like I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it's the opposite of Alien versus Predator where I'm just like, I like both <laughs> of you. Like no one loses, you know? Like it's it's that kind of thing. Right. Like we can all, you know, the executives at that time, we can talk a lot of shit about if we want to, but. Yeah. Not on this podcast. That's a different podcast. Not today. 
Someone should start an Alan Moore's History of Legal Disputes with Marvel and DC <laughs> podcast because I would listen to it, but yeah, I don't I think mean, I'm yeah. the person to to do it. Yeah. I was joking with Stephanie Burt. I was on uh, Team Up Moves, the podcast that she does with her friend Fiona, where they do like tabletop games. And uh, it was a lot of fun. But we were joking that a fun tabletop game to write would be You Are in a Legal Dispute with Alan Moore. <laughs> Because Stephanie has already written a game called You Are Chris Claremont that's about trying to get queer subtext past Jim Shooter. It's like a journaling game. <laughs> she sent it to me and it's very funny. I was like, you should actually like pay to make have someone make like art for this because it would be really funny. And I think Chris would love it, actually. She did a fan fiction based on a Bitches on Comics episode one time because we were talking to um, Ilana Levin. Also a friend of the pod. Yes. I love that we have all the same cool friends. We have That's these great. like friends that are in the same Taste. circle. And yeah, she was talking about how uh, the kitty gets left at the mansion for Christmas is the quintessential Jewish experience of Christmas, basically. Absolutely. So she said that she had cannons, you know, like Bing Grimm taking kitty out for Chinese food because that's like, you know, the thing to do on Christmas. And uh, Stephanie Burt <laughs> did like a whole fan fiction about it. One thing about being a like late in life affirming Jew and like my mother not being Jewish and all of that, that does make me feel like I'm stealing valor a little bit is that I never had that exact experience that is like such a very deep real experience of yeah. being a Jewish child who yeah. doesn't get Christmas because my dad's family was just like never religious. So we did Christmas because my mom loves Christmas. Sure. One of the first things I said to my rabbi was like, can I still do Christmas? Because my mom will fucking kill me if I don't do Christmas. You can do the Harley Quinn, right? Because Harley Quinn is. Yes. Is it her dad is Catholic, right? Harley her Quinn. Jewish, yes. While we're recording, actually, yesterday, Teeny Howard's first issue of Harley Quinn came That's out. That's right. And I loved it. And I said to her, I was like, Teeny, I don't always love this character. I don't always love, like, comedy comics. But I laughed out loud, like, three times. Everybody check out that Harley Quinn, because it is fun so far. It's so fun. So gay. Yeah. So effortlessly funny. Sweeney Boo is drawing the absolute shit out of it. And she it's does true. her own colors and it looks like no other book at DC color wise. Yeah. Like she has such an interesting palette. We're way off topic. So we're going to come up. back around. <laughs> we're in the outback now. <laughs> and we get a nice moment where we see Madeline... I forget which issue this is. I took a screen cap off Marvel Unlimited, but Storm has her powers back after Fall of the Mutants. So she's zipping around and Maddie is on the computer consoles, observing her, making sure everything is okay and like has already figured out how all the scanning equipment works. Ah, Madeline, I had almost forgotten how glorious this felt. It's good to hear you laugh, Aurora. I hope we all get the chance to do it more often. Are you scanning me? Got you cold. Sensors are giving me a pretty comprehensive analysis of your abilities. I've never seen such sophisticated hardware, not even back at the X-Men's old headquarters. The Reavers may have been unregenerate slime balls, but some of them were technological geniuses. With these systems, I bet I can tap into any computer communications network on Earth. And it's so user-friendly that even a novice like me can learn to handle it in comparatively no time. You ever wonder why they picked this godforsaken wilderness for their hideout, Storm? With their loot, they could have settled anywhere on Earth. What made this dump of a ghost town so enticing? 
A hard land, Madeline, where only the toughest and wiliest of creatures have even a hope of survival, and as our new home constantly puts us to the test, so now shall we do the same. It's fun. I love it the outfit. It is fun. It reminds me, I saw this documentary once where great white sharks had learned how to like leap out of the water off of the northern coast of Australia. And I asked this guy who I met from Australia like about that. And he was just like, yeah, I know I'm from there. And I was like, you didn't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't see a leaping great white shark. (laughs) Maybe he did, though. He might (laughs) have. They run basically a danger room exercise. They're all training and Psylocke is doing a bunch of like butterfly observations at the same time that Madeline is doing a bunch of computer observations. And I was just like, these are Chris's favorite characters and you can tell. Loves it. Besides Storm, obviously, but like you get what I mean. It's fun. You start to get the sense that this could be a fun status quo. But then at the end of the issue, this is where we can tell that the plan is now in motion. Nice work, Madeline. Finest kind. Praise indeed, Wolverine. I thank you. Fantastic. The systems all worked perfectly, and so did I. Finally, I'm contributing to the team, pulling my own weight. Nice to discover it. Long last, I still have worth to the X-Men as much as to myself. The Marauders may have stolen my baby, but by heaven, no matter how long it takes or what it costs, I mean to get him back and make the swine who stole him pay. A heartfelt promise. A pity Madeline Pryor doesn't remember that one should always be careful what one wishes for. But that's a story for another day. This issue is the one Nolan and I talked about in the Longshot episode. It's the Christmas story where they return all of the stolen goods to everybody around the world. We see that Betsy is psi-linking with Longshot to like use their powers together to identify the history of each object. And then Madeline is typing it into the computers and pinpointing each location. So she's like a really essential part of the team here, which is nice. Yeah, they don't explore this enough, I don't think, because they don't have time really. Like her being this kind of essential member of the team. But yeah. They really don't, unfortunately. But it's cute. Like Claremont, because it's, I mean, it's double shipping at this point, I think. Like, there's moments where it's like, next, in two weeks, like this story. And you're like, geez. <laughs> yeah. I wish that there was more time, but because it's double shipping, there are enough issues that it feels like a real status quo that lasts yeah. for a while. In this reread, I was actually surprised by how brief it was. Yeah, totally. Same. Because it's like you remember her. It happens much quicker than I thought because yeah. it's so memorable to me as a really fun era for the X-Men. I think also because the 80s RPG that I grew up reading all the source books of, like that was where I was learning about a lot of characters and things. Intelligence, outstanding, like that RPG where like it, it was a weird system. Yeah. The highest level Dazzler's power could reach was Black Bolt's voice, which is why when that <laughs> happened in Humans vs. X-Men, I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I studied for this. My one hell yeah moment <laughs> in Inhumans vs. X-Men. Fair. It just looms so large for me that I forget that it's only like 20 issues. Yeah, same. Max. Yeah, it completely surprises me every time. And it also feels like these books, like uh, most Chris Claremont books are very dense. Well, that's the thing is like every issue feels like 30 issues of a different comic, right? Because there's so much text and he accomplishes so much in such a little period of time. Yeah. 
The next issue is the Rick Lanardi bottle episode where Colossus gets summoned by Ilyana and they fight the Baba Yaga and all of that stuff and she thinks he's a ghost. <laughs> it's actually funny. I was looking at some of the letters columns from these issues and after that story, like a Christian person who was very upset wrote in like all of this demonology and necromancy like you can't be letting these heroic characters do this but it was printed in the issue of inferno new mutants where Ilyana dies and wheezy's like i think you can see that it didn't work out well for her in the end <laughs> which made me laugh it's also really funny how many demons there are in comics during this time period it is a demon heavy period given that they like can't really say hell or devil yeah. they're like by hades or like here we are in limbo Mephisto, it's a goblin like, night Velasco, like these goblins are stealing our babies you know like it's people are like why is she called the goblin queen and i'm like a labyrinth b it's less harsh for the comics code authority than demon queen demon lady yeah <laughs> After that issue is 232. This is the return of the Brood, the Brood Outback arc, which is an incredible arc where Havoc is taken to maybe his lowest point after he kills some Brood-infected people. And it's necessary, but it still leaves him feeling completely devastated. And yeah. that's an important context for where he's at going into Inferno. Yeah, it fucks him up. This is 232. Gateway is sitting, go back to the Gateway episode with Kyat and Klein, not only because it's one of my favorite episodes ever of this podcast, but also because we talk a lot about Gateway's interplay with Madeline and how he kind of lets her story happen, which you'd think, like, they're friendly and you'd think he would help her, but he doesn't because he knows this is what's supposed to happen. Yeah. Part of that is that Gateway always knows when the X-Men need him to teleport them or when he should teleport them, even if they don't know yet that he should. So his bonfire flares and he spins the bull roar and a gateway opens and Madeline Pryor steps through. She is looking snatched. Yes. She has a new haircut, which looks a lot like Jean's haircut, but yep. she doesn't know that yet. Nope. Because <laughs> she doesn't know Jean's alive yet. She's yep. about to find out. She's also wearing one of her best ever civilian outfits, which is a teal mini dress she bought in Sydney with like a jeweled statement belt. It's very 80s, but in the kind of way where like if Christian Siriano dressed an actress in it right now, I wouldn't think it looked bad i would be yeah. like yeah that's hot it's retro you know and isn't she going for a little bit of like a backless moment it's a slightly backless moment a la jean yep and she's like feeling herself in a really yeah. fun way and it's an interesting moment of continuity here because and I don't mean continuity like comics continuity. I mean continuity between her and Jean. Yeah. Because it's almost like she is feeling good about herself and starts dressing and looking more like Jean Grey right before she finds out that Jean Grey is alive and has stolen her man. Yeah. 
And the best laid plans of mice and men then gang after Glay very quickly. It looks like she's going to go out and like have a great well and there's so there's a funny bit she's like brr i know gateways are pal that it's okay to trust him but i'm a pilot i'd much rather fly from place to place than be teleported thank you sir for the trip but he doesn't respond because gateway never responds to them and she goes oh what's the use i might as well be talking to this hill i could be stark naked and that old man wouldn't even bat an eye Bet that it spooked the X-Men some though especially havoc <laughs> as she walks into the vase and then she goes now, why is that such an intriguing thought? Oh, <laughs> I think you know why. I'm home, everyone. Back from Sydney with the shopping. Hello? Hello? No answer. Probably no X-Men either. Typical. Then she stops in front of a mirror, and this is where you fully see the sleigh that is her outfit. Yeah. New hairstyle, new outfit, and nobody around to tell me how absolutely great I look. Story of my life. So she's alone in the base for a while. This issue is important, by the way, so pay attention because later Louise Simonson will try to gaslight us about what happened <laughs> in this issue. And I yep. need you to remember exactly. The reason we're reading so much is A, because all of Madeline's dialogue is great, like how we read a yeah. lot of Candy's dialogue, but also because we are making a case yeah, in yeah, this yeah. episode. This 10-hour episode of Cerebro <laughs> is a defense case for Madeline Pryor, and I need you to understand what happened in Uncanny X-Men 232 because when Wheezy lies to you about it, I need you to understand <laughs> that that's not what happened. And I love Wheezy. Wheezy, if you're listening, I'd love to have you on the show. Yeah, we love you. But we disagree strongly about Ms. Pryor, and this is an important plank in my <laughs> Maddie defense platform. So she's there alone for most of the day because they're off, like, dealing with the brood stuff. Drawing. Later on, in the town's underground computer center, nice of them to leave a message telling me they're off on a mission. Hope it goes well. Wonder what I'll do if it doesn't. Funny how this place gives everyone else the creeps. Me, I feel right at home. So let's see. The world thinks the X-Men are dead, considers them legends, but the team needs a sort of sign for people to remember them by after their missions. Zoro had his Z, the Lone Ranger, a silver bullet. Hmm, I wonder. Longshot and Dazzler both wear stars on their costumes, and she's drawing a starburst like the one that Dazzler and Longshot wear. Stars mean the law, the good guys, eight points, eight X-Men, definitely has possibilities. And that's an important moment because she doesn't count herself in the eight. Yep. So while I consider Madeline to be part of the team in this era, Madeline sees herself as something of an interloper still. Right. And they kind of don't treat her like she's part of the team too They much. left her a message, but they didn't tell her to come. Yeah. You know? So she's drawing this logo, which, by the way, is the logo that the X-Men will use as a calling card for the next several issues. So they like it. It's a starburst with like an X in the middle and eight points. Someone asked me once in the Discord, they were like, do they use this for very long? Because it would be a killer tattoo. And I was like, they use it for literally like five issues, yeah. but it would be a killer tattoo. It would be a deep cut. And you know it how would be a we deep love cut, a deep cut. And people wouldn't know that it was an X-Men tattoo unless you told them. So there's that. There you are. Anyway, she starts like drinking what I assume is a beer. Like it's not stated, but it has that vibe of like, she's just chilling now in her computer console <laughs> wouldn't center. Wouldn't it be funny? She's just drinking like a big plastic cup with like that's full of like red wine 
<laughs> it's like a can though. Like is it? I think it is like a tall boy. All right. All it right. has you some kind what? of logo um, on it. Yeah, I know. I've been like wondering about this because I was like, oh, what's going on here, Maddie? I mean, I probably am thinking way too much about what Maddie is drinking in these panels. But same though, like this is why you're my guest on this episode, because we're also thinking we're we're, we're asking the same vitally important questions, which is what beverage what is would... Maddie Pryor consuming in this issue? Yeah, because her day goes badly, but it's like, but what kind of aftertaste are you working with whenever you see what happens next? Exactly. (laughs) She thinks to herself, amazing setup. This system's so sophisticated, I can tap into any computer communications network on earth. Yet so user-friendly, it literally taught me how to use it. Awfully considerate for something designed by a band of thieves and cutthroat killers. Maybe too considerate. What the? <laughs> and that's spoken, not thought. Yeah. She has a little bing exclamation point kind of like explosion around her head. We also see here, I guess we saw it on the previous page, but her cute little teal pumps that match her dress. This outfit kills. Her I want her to legs wear it again. Go for <laughs> days. Like Mark Silvestri draws the fuck out of all these issues, but yeah. he makes Madeline look hotter than maybe anyone's ever been in a comic book throughout this arc leading into Inferno. Yeah, when people say legs that go for days, I never knew what they meant until I saw this moment where like literally Madeline's legs, like he's making sure that they're It's like in Sailor Moon vibes. Panel. It's like Naoko oh, Takeuchi yeah. legs to the ends of the earth. I <laughs> asked in the 60th anniversary Marvel like event, I asked a question for Mark Silvestri that they read. I think maybe someone like filtering through the questions was Cerebro fan. And thank you to everybody who was in that chat, by the way, and was excited to see me there. That made me feel like a crazy person because I, <laughs> I don't think of myself as like someone people are aware of. But there were so many of you who were like, Connor Goldsmith, I love your work. And I was like, geez, that's crazy. <laughs> I asked if he had a fashion background, Silvestri, because he draws these clothes and these women in particular so beautifully. And he laughed out loud and was like, no. (laughs) But when you are an artist, you try to pick up the theory of different kinds of art around you. And so like you learn how clothes should work. And I'm like, you'd think that, Mark, but I don't (laughs) think as many people focus on it the way that you did. He was like, I do not have a fashion background, let me tell you. He also looked incredible. He's in his 60s. He looks like 45. Nice. Looking hot. Mark Sylvester, if you're listening, your moisturizing (laughs) regimen is going great. That retinol working for you, my friend. Anyway, on the screen is Trish Tilby, of all people. (laughs) Of all people. Exactly. Interviewing Scott and Jean in their X-Factor uniforms after the fight with Apocalypse and Fall of the Mutants. A TV interview? It's Scott. And beside him, that woman. She's me. No! It's Marvel Girl. Jean Grey. The woman he loved before he married me. But she's supposed to be dead. And the way they're standing, relating to each other. No wonder he left me and our baby. It's clear as day. He loves her the way he never loved me. And she punches the console screen with a crack. And then, skabam! Bam. A huge explosion comes out from it and knocks her unconscious. That's not great. Not great. What could that mean? <laughs> 
<laughs> the following issue, we get the beginning of what I think is, I mentioned the dream sequences before, but this is one of Chris Claremont's greatest writing moments. Part of it is that Mark Silvestri draws the ever-living shit out of this. And if you have liked any of Zeb Wells's work with Maddie, whether it was in Hellions or in Dark Web, you must read these issues because he draws heavily on this dream sequence. And it's truly, I cried. Yeah. Like, because this stuff is incredible. Yeah, this is like if you like a uh, vampire lesbian like dream sequences from like hammer horror films of the 70s. It's very that. Yeah, but like also like a Greek tragedy on top of it. So it's a but like very... also Medea by Euripides. Yeah, yeah. yeah. like everything uh, about this is unbelievable. Yeah, I'm going to describe it for you because Sarah is going to humor me and let me do that because she mm -hmm. knows how much I love these issues, but yes. nothing compares to reading them. So I suggest you check them out. Uncanny X-Men 233, 234. The X-Men are fighting the brood mutants. Don't worry about it, except it's fun, <laughs> but like you don't have to worry about it right now. And it cuts suddenly to a sequence and the gutters around the panels there's like wavy lines so that you know it's the dream sequence it's also the dream time in the aboriginal australian sense so go back again to the gateway and manifold episode kayatin talked in that episode about how claremont literalizes dream time and dreams as having a connection a little too closely but she was impressed by how much he seemed to understand the Aboriginal spirituality underpinning it. So while it's not supposed to be literal dreams, it's pretty good. We're in the mountains and it says, God's country, as wild and free and elementally beautiful as its fairest daughter doing what she was born to do. Madeline is flying among the birds. She has angelic wings and is wearing a yellow dress. I think that the association with yellow is important somehow, and I haven't quite figured it out, but like she is at her most pure and human when she's wearing yellow. So that's what we get here. Mm -hmm. It's like the color she wore when she danced with Scott. It's the color yep. she wore at Wolverine's wedding to Mariko. It's the color she wore when she gave birth. Yep. And the Goblin Queen notably wears that yellow brooch over her heart. Mm -hmm. Later artists add the red gem, but in Inferno, there's no red gem. Silvestri yeah. just has the yellow, the gold brooch. Yeah. So I don't know. I have to like think about what that means, but it means something. Anyway, she's in a yellow dress here. It's a softer yellow than those yellows because mm -hmm. this is a dream. As far back as she can remember, Madeline Pryor dreamed of soaring through the sky to the stars and beyond. Only love for this man, Scott Summers, could make her give that up. She alights from the air. Scott is standing there with their baby in a stroller. And she kisses him. It's as though he's the missing piece of her soul. From the moment they met, she knew they were made for each other. In his arms, she feels whole, fulfilled, happy. And when she bore their son, well, that made things even better. Theirs was a future of infinite possibilities. This is interesting. Then we get two panels that have regular gutters and the narration boxes change from the soft yellow 
to the bright human yellow of those dresses Maddie wore in those actual moments. In her joy, the rush of the moment, she never thought to consider that some might be bad. She lies where she fell beneath the main monitor screen of the computer command center that itself is buried beneath the abandoned Australian outback town the X-Men have claimed for their own. And beside her, in this realm of flesh, as well as the other of spirit. And we see Maddie lying on the ground, bleeding in her teal dress with Gateway kneeling over her. This is the scene that Kayaton and I talked about in that episode. But then also in the dream, Gateway is standing before her. Gateway, what are you doing here? You don't exist. You're a creature from my dreams. Go away, curse you, leave me and my family alone. And Gateway begins to spin his bull roar in the dream. The ancient aborigine pays her no heed, but instead begins to swing his bull roar. In our waking reality, this opens a teleportal gateway. Here, it has other abilities. He blew up our house! As Scott transforms into Cyclops in a kind of interesting panel mm -hmm. where there's like several of him who turn into Cyclops. Yeah. This sequence is so beautifully drawn. Mm-hmm. Behind me, Madeline, look after the baby. I'll take care of this creep. Zark. Zark! From Cyclops' <laughs> eyes flash optic blasts capable of punching a hole through a battleship, and they seem to do the trick. Gateway disappears. He's gone, Madeline says. But Scott, rising from the ashes, something else! A nude form rises from the ashes of Gateway. It's a female form. It's a white woman, but it is a fully blank canvas. There's no facial features. There's no hair. It reaches out to them plaintively. Form without feature, little more than a mannequin. Nothing to be afraid of. Yet, to Madeline's uncomprehending horror, when the figure reaches out to Scott in yearning supplication, he responds gladly. Scott embraces this creature and begins making out with it. With an eager, wholehearted passion, he never felt for her. Maddie, still angelic, winged, is clutching their son to her chest. Time to lose those wings, Maddie. You're not supposed to have them anyway. You can't really fly. You're not special like us. Scott rips the wings off her back. You're only human. Can't keep him either. And he takes the baby. Scott, no! He's a mutant, sweetheart. He should be raised by his own kind. He hands the baby to the mannequin. See how happy he looks? You couldn't take that away from him, could you? <laughs> says the baby. <laughs> how can you do this? Madeline cries. I love you. And Scott reaches over and snatches her wig. He pulls the hair right off her head and says, I know, and I'm really sorry, but I loved someone else first. Her needs take priority. He turns to the mannequin and puts the hair on her head. There, that's better. A few more details. He pulls off Madeline's mouth. Yeah. As she screams no, and Orzakowski, the god, the it speech fades. bubble fades halfway through her scream. And she's crying. Yeah. In the next panel, there's tears streaming down her face as he pulls off her nose. Ugh. The finishing touches pulled from the copy. The next panel, he pulls off her eyes, and the original will be restored. Good as new. And the mannequin is now Jean Grey. With, like, the most, like, chill face. She's just, like... She's just loving life. <laughs> and then, like, you see the 
uh, Madeline's hands fly up like to the sides of her face. So even though she doesn't have features, you can see that she's like, you can hear her screaming. In a, yeah. Yeah. There's like a complete panic moment for her. I love Jean Grey, Maddie. Always have, always will. When I thought she was dead, I felt like someone had ripped out my heart. It was wrong of me to turn to you to take her place. The backdrop is fading around them and Maddie's yellow robes are disintegrating until she is the naked mannequin. I never meant to hurt you, but once I discovered Jean was alive, I had to go back to her. I'll never lose her again. And now they're in their X Factor costumes. Goodbye, Maddie. Scott and Jean rise with Jean holding Madeline's baby into the sun. Madeline is left nude and standing in an endless desert that stretches all around her. Faceless, expressionless, the same mannequin now. She would scream, but she has no mouth. A nothing being in a nowhere place, abandoned and alone. Uh, yeah, wow. Woof! I know, like, this is the thing too, is I wonder because much like you, I read Inferno before I read a lot of this stuff. And I'm like, I wonder sometimes whenever I go jump around in X-Men comics, what it must have been like to be to read it in sequence. Sequentially. Yeah, and I think that it would have to be on this podcast, that's why I try to do that, to like do yeah. it in sequence, because even if I can't experience that, and even if the listeners know that Maddie Pryor becomes the Goblin Queen, right? something about the chronology, I mean, I talk a lot about Chris Claremont on this podcast and his foibles as a writer, his flaws as a writer, but he also is, I think, one of the most genius mass media writers of the 20th century, and this is a great example of that. Yeah. He was constantly having his story about this woman disrupted. Yeah. And he turned it into gold every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Every moment in Madeline's story is breathtaking under his pen. Yeah, it's true. This sequence is wild because I feel like we start this issue with her, like we said, looking hot. We're like, oh, what's going to happen? She's living her best life. She's like, maybe I'll fuck my brother-in-law. He's cute. She's like, I went to Sydney. I went shopping. X-Men, I'm going to design us a logo because I'm part of the gang. I'm not one of the eight of you, but I'm your girl Friday here in the base. She's living her Sue Dibney fantasy where yeah. like she's the Justice League's indispensable human ally. And yet they leave her alone at the worst moment. They leave her alone in the moment she finds out Jean Grey is alive. Yeah. They didn't do that on purpose, but it sends her on a spiraling journey that she can't ever really escape from. Yeah. Because once she's in this dream, She's fucked. Yeah. Because just like Gateway can access the dream, so too can the demons of Limbo. And yes. that's what we see in the next issue. Yeah. They've had their eye on Maddie for a while. And it's never 100% made clear why. There's a couple inferences that can be made. One is Sinister will later say 
that Madeline as a genetic copy of Jean is attuned to the Phoenix. Yeah. So as above, so below. I think that Limbo and the Phoenix are positioned opposite each other several times by Claremont in interesting ways in the same way that the Shadow King is positioned opposite the Phoenix. The Phoenix is the overpowering, benevolent, but also terrifying energy of the universe. And then there are these sort of clopothic entities like Limbo, like the Shadow King, that are its opposite numbers. There's also, though, to me, the idea that Madeline's sheer force of will, it's that narration of, like, be careful what you wish for. It's like she spoke it in this sacred place because it's stressed over and over again that the Reavers have colonized Gateway's sacred land. Yeah. And so she is in this space that is very sacred to the indigenous people around her and has mystical resonance. And I think that like Gateway being in and out of these visions is part of that. She doesn't realize it because she's, again, just a regular lady. Yeah. But she's in this sort of space of cosmic mystical significance and says, I will take revenge on the man who stole my baby no matter what. And I think the demons hear her. Yeah. And the moment where like how Gateway never interferes because it's like he knows that if she doesn't choose to walk away from it herself, that it won't have any weight right right because i think that even here he has this interesting role right because he's just kind of watching her and a lot of people of course would be like well why doesn't he help or why doesn't he say something and it's like i think that he's so with her though like he wants her to be able to walk away from this Yes, but Kaid and I also talked about how we think he understands in the same way that Gateway understands that his people must be devastated so that in the end Manifold can exist. Right. The way Claremont writes indigenous characters is always a little fraught, but I think that Claremont identifies his Jewish heritage really strongly with that struggle. In this case, it's a similar thing. It's like how Magneto must always persevere, Gateway must always persevere. Gateway looks at this woman who he can tell because he's attuned to the song lines is not quote unquote real. Like he must know, right? Oh yeah. Because he can see her past just like he can see her future. Yeah, I think that that's like implicit, right? Kayad and I came to maybe the conclusion that's kind of sick but makes sense if you're looking at it on a macro scale the way that Gateway looks at everything that Madeline has to become the Goblin Queen in order to gain agency over her life. Yeah. And as fucked up as it might be, the reason she's now alive in the Krakoan age and able to be Jean's sister and Scott's healthy ex in whatever sense and Alex's (laughs) lover and an ally to Krakoa despite her best wishes of I'd love to kill them all, (laughs) but I can't stop myself from being fundamentally kind of a good person. Yeah. That all happens because she falls prey to the demons and so he lets it happen yeah yeah i think that like his presence here is just kind of a fascinating thing it's what makes him a tragic character and this is what was also interesting about i mean i just again go back if you haven't heard that episode because kitan's a genius yeah she talks about the difference between gateway and destiny and how destiny is constantly interfering in the timeline based on her visions of it 
Whereas to Aboriginal Australians, that would be like very blasphemous. Yeah. And so Gateway never interferes. He just sometimes helps things along in a way where he's like, like he'll bring Jubilee to Australia because right. he knows that someone is supposed to help Wolverine get to Madripoor. Right. But he's not going to directly interfere, even if it would save his own people from the Reavers. Yeah. He can't bring himself to do that because he knows that that's wrong. Yeah. And in the same way here, I think he knows that Madeline needs to experience this herself. And like yeah. you said, she needs to resist it herself or she needs to see it through and become a villain and then be redeemed. Yeah. You see it like in a literal way because she sees a fork. Yes. There's a fork in the road, right? Yes. Because Chris is <laughs> fucking smart. I know. I know. It's true. The next issue, there's an interesting return to the dream. This is where the demonic stuff starts happening. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, in a desolate, deserted town in the heart of Australia's outback that the X-Men have chosen for their home... Doesn't look like much, but that's okay. So far as the world believes, the X-Men are dead. Appearances can be deceiving. And few things, especially where the X-Men are concerned, are ever what they seem. Case in point, rattletrap buildings above, the highest of high tech below, scores of video screens impossibly showing what should be Madeline Pryor's dream. This is what's interesting, is that her dream is now visible on these view screens. That's how the reader knows, oh, there's something else happening here, right? A horror show nightmare wherein her husband, Scott Summers, strips her of everything of value and then her very identity, giving them all to his first love, his true love, Jean Grey. You can feel how furious Chris is in every single one of these. Yeah, oh, his true boxes. love, Jean Elaine Grey. Like <laughs> and it's interesting because Chris loves Jean Grey. Yeah. But he loves Madeline more. Yeah. And you can feel it. He made it to a place, right? Like, we all made it to a place. We saw the whole thing with Scott and Maddie. Like, we all made it to a place. He loved Jean. He made Jean Phoenix because he thought Jean deserved better. Yeah. But then when Jean was struck down by editorial, he created Maddie, who was his. Yeah. Not a Stanley and Jack Kirby creation. This is my character and I love her. Yeah. And then he was told, Your character is not good enough. We're bringing Gene back. Mm -hmm. You can feel him channel that into these stories. He said he was sorry, as though that would make everything all right, as he left her, a nothing being in a nowhere place, abandoned and alone. In her mind's eye, she wanders, and we see Gateway sitting over her comatose body in reality as on the view screen now, the faceless mannequin Madeline wanders through the desert. More cipher than human being, an ambulatory mannequin, watched here in our waking world as there in her dreamscape by the X-Men's aboriginal companion, Gateway. He makes no move to help her, for that is not his purpose in the scheme of things, but simply watches and if he's disappointed by her choice, because this is where she reaches the fork in the road that you mentioned, yep. to wander out to the deep desert instead of back to town, it doesn't show. This is her fate, her destiny. There is no mercy to this land, nothing remotely soft or gentle. The sun is a furnace, the desert a forge. 
And that phrasing is interesting to me because Forge sent her there, right? Yeah. The sun begins to melt the mannequin like wax. And as it melts yeah. down, you see Madeline's facial features reassert themselves and her hair reassert itself, which I th- like by her sheer force of will, she's like, no, fuck you. Yeah. I'm Madeline Pryor and I'm a real person. Pairing her down to her essence, making her one with the land. And when the weapon is tempered, it is cooled. She falls down a sandy dune cliffside into a pool of water. Steam rises up behind her. Sure does. She's boiling hot. (laughs) The better to be honed to a killing edge, she rises naked from the water and ultimately to be used. Welcome to paradise, Madeline Pryor. Sim places a dark navy blue cape around her shoulders. Is this the first we see of Sim? Outside of the magic and new mutant Uh, stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know me? Hey, we're inside your head, remember? Aren't we all friends here? I wonder. Live and learn. That's Sim's motto. Whose? Sim. Me. Oh. You live here? Perish the thought ain't my style. Just visiting is all, but you never know. A body should always be open to new experiences. Oh. <laughs> Sam is one of my least favorite characters in all of Marvel. Such Club. a sketchball. Not in that I think he's a bad character, but in that he makes me physically recoil. For listeners, if you haven't listened to the magic episode I did with Leah Williams, we go into it more there, but Sim in Claremont's work up to this point is basically the representation of sexual abuse. He is the demon who helped Belasco torment Ilyana as a child, and it is implied that when she stepped out of line as a little girl, Sim would punish her in ways that she doesn't want any of her friends to see. And we don't know anything about it because, thank God. That hasn't been revealed yet, I should note, by the time of this issue. That's something Louise Simonson pulls out in Inferno, the specifics. Yeah. The specific implication that he raped her. Yeah. But we already know he's bad news and that he's a sexual threat. And Maddie's like naked wrapped in this cape and it's an unpleasant image. Yeah. He walks her into this citadel made of gold. Change the scenery, rattle the cage, shake out the cobwebs. Hazard your soul to win the world might do some good. I don't understand. What does all this mean? What am I, a shrink? This is what dreams do best, sweetheart. Offer insight into your true nature and access to your heart's desire. Wouldn't you like that? He grabs a little creature that was drinking wine out of a Which, come on, this thing's so cute. I know, and he petrifies it King Midas style into a gold statue. I'm not sure. This is so strange. Almost frightening. I feel like I'm flying blind with a thunderstorm all around, only I don't know where. Don't you just hate that? Being at the mercy of forces beyond your control. Wouldn't you rather shape your own destiny than play the perpetual victim? And that's the key line. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's still real sketchy here. <laughs> like, But he identifies, yeah. as demons often do, exactly what she needs to hear. Exactly. He tips the golden creature toward her lips and it pours the wine into her mouth and the wine might be blood not super clear what's going on here I'll survive bully for you don't you yearn for something more I am what I am and that's 
really important. So I am what I am. Eya asher eya in Hebrew is what God says to Moses. I, on this podcast several times, have pointed out that it is essential to my understanding of Claremont's Phoenix because it is also what Jean says to Storm. I'm the only me that ever was, which is also a translation of Ea Asher Ea. That is really key because Maddie says it first. And as we get into Inferno and Maddie takes on the Lilith role in this Kabbalistic play of Claremont's, <laughs> I think it's important that she says it first. It's one of Jean's most iconic lines, and I like that. She says it again in the Genosha arc in a moment that's very important. Right. Her reflection in the nails. He has his nails up. Sim is holding up his fingers now. I mentioned earlier that I was, like, mad that Zeb got to do this because it had occurred to me, right. too. Like, that Maddie, as an actualized character, should take one of these fingers and use it for her own purposes. But Sim holds up his hand, and all of his fingers are gleaming with mirrored reflections of her. One is a child, one is a pilot, one is just sort of a nubile version of her that looks like maybe it's her and Scott in flagrante, if I'm going to guess. <laughs> and then one is a demonic-looking visage. Yeah, and it's super tiny, and you can still make all of this out. Like the so detail. Sylvester fucking slays this. Yeah. Like each of these versions of Madeline looks extremely different. Yeah, you can identify like the difference, and they're so tiny on the page that it's just like, ugh, so good. So she says, "I am what I am," and Sim says, "And what's that, pray tell? Some of these parts, maybe." Standard equation: genes plus environment equals this is your life. What you were, what you are, what you dream of becoming. See anything you like? Think about it. What better way to exercise the parts you detest than by confronting them? And where better to yield to temptation? Hey, if you can't indulge your wildest fantasies in a dream, then where? Hubby boy Scott, he dumped you. I love him. Doesn't that make it worse? He hurt you, Madeline. Hurt him back. What the heck? It's only a dream. She touches the nail that represents her as the Goblin Queen. Wrong, he says. He plunges that nail into her chest right through her heart. There are no dreams. Only different shapes, different orders, different tastes as he drinks her blood off his fingernail of reality. And you've just bound yourself to mine. Ah, you tricked her. <laughs> we are left now with Maddie in the Goblin Queen costume. Oh, yeah. This is the first we see of it. back against the sand. It's the first time it appears. Under boob, God bless. Like, Just popping. God bless America. <laughs> At the end of the issue, we cut to a Trish Tilby broadcast mm -hmm. where she is explaining what has happened with William Conover and the brood stuff. His wife, Hannah Conover, for people who are big on the brood queen who may enter heaven in terms of Chris Claremont recent esoterica, is the brood queen being discussed in that story, I'm pretty sure. But don't worry about that right now. Someday <laughs> I will get into that on the Patreon. Or maybe I'll ask Chris about it because I feel like he would go into detail if someone asked him. Oh, you know? sure. Yeah. 
Anyway, the brood plot is being resolved, but we're watching this news broadcast in the basement of the Reaver base on Maddie's view screens. Havoc and Wolverine are talking, and Wolverine says, You did good, Havoc. Why? Because I killed? You did what had to be done. And that's supposed to make me feel proud? Sorry, Wolverine. I'm afraid all I feel right now is sick. And we see Madeline lying in the same pose as in her dream in the Goblin Queen Raymond, but she's in her snatched teal dress. Blood pouring out of her back from where Sim stabbed through her body. And so the X-Men return to their town where nothing is what it seems, celebrating their victory above while blissfully unaware of the nightmare spawning below, where Madeline Pryor lies, more than alive, less than dead, transfigured by a dream that's fast on the way to becoming reality. Next, a green and pleasant land on sale in two weeks. That's crazy, by the way. Like, again, the fact that these issues were coming out that twice fast? a month yeah. is wild. Yeah, they are jam-packed. Chris Claremont, you're crazy for that. Worth mentioning before we dive into the Genosha arc, a green and pleasant land, the name of this arc and the slogan used on Genosian billboards comes from a William Blake poem mm -hmm. called And Did Those Feet in Ancient Time? Early 1800s, like turn of the century. I want to say it was like 1804, 1805. Sure. Yeah, that sounds about right. It imagines a visit by Jesus Christ to England in the untold years of Jesus's life that are not reported in the Gospels. And how beautiful it would have been if the Lamb of God had strode upon English soil. This is a poem that has been used for many years as a symbol of the British Empire, as a symbol of English sovereignty. It was set to music and was pitched as the British National Anthem. It's one of the most popular British things. One of the other lines in it that's really key to Claremont's thought process on some level. I mean, on one level, it's Chris Claremont identifies as British, was born in Britain, moved to America as a small child, but thinks of himself as British and is very critical of British empire. So yeah. there's that to begin with. But then also one of the other things in the poem, I'll read the poem actually, because it's short. Yeah. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental flight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. The Dark Satanic Mills stanza is used throughout Alan Moore's Jasper's Warp storyline in Captain Britain because it is about the Industrial Revolution that was emerging and the dystopia that Moore builds based on the Tory government and based on Jim Jaspers is all steeped in that. Mm -hmm. This is Claremont referencing Blake to criticize British Empire, but also 
I think, a send up to Morris Jasper's work because he loved that storyline so much. Right. Even though in this moment, he's not allowed to use any of those characters. Right. So he's like, let's get in the reference, though. And it is we'll such get an reference. interesting one. It's a fascinating reference. That is not historically light. You know, like that is like a no. very important poem. And Genosha which is an island off the coast of yep. Africa near the Seychelles, <laughs> mm -hmm. is Claremont's extremely provocative, extremely bold metaphor for South African apartheid. Yeah. And at the time that this comic is coming out, I need to stress this for younger listeners, apartheid was still happening. Yeah, This is something I think I've had people in the Discord even say they didn't realize that. They were like, wow, the Genosha arc is heavy-handed. And then they realized that apartheid ran until the early 1990s. Yeah, yeah. And just that, like, so many things, you there were people who just never wanted to talk about it. Right. And so the fact that people were like, even though it is heavy-handed, this is, like, one example of this actually being approach discuss yeah in the biggest comic book in the world yeah that americans were reading on mass and that is key because american disapproval of apartheid was a big part of what leveraged pressure on it to end yeah there was a boycott there was a lot of stuff going on at the time so right that's the context I just wanted to point that out because it's not subtle yeah <laughs> it is not subtle yeah it's not just about South Africa though is what I'm saying it's yeah. also Claremont condemning his own ancestors condemning the British Empire all of that yeah I think that that's really, really interesting because he is an Anglophile in a lot of ways, but he also is a staunchly anti-imperialist kind of guy. And I think that that duality and that tension that he feels in his British identity is an important part of his of. Particularly this era of the X-Men, right? Like pretty mm -hmm. much in general, like, you know, it pops up here and there, but I think during this time... Yeah, because I, I don't know how often people look back at the Outback era as being like an explicitly political time period for comics, but it always every, every time I read X-Men back over, I'm just like, right. The Reavers stuff is all about the genocide of the Aboriginal Australians, yeah, right? Like so it's like he's dealing with all of this stuff at the same time, and it's crazy looking back. Yeah. It's much like my reappraisal. If you listen back to early episodes of this podcast, I'm very harsh on the Legacy Virus storyline. Sure. Looking back on it now, and even when I was looking at it a couple years after it had come out, I'm reading yeah. that when I'm like seven or eight. I was like, well, okay, but like you should actually write about gay people and actually write about AIDS. But looking back and realizing they were not allowed to do that. They couldn't that. do that, yeah. It's frustrating Seeing Claremont use white characters in the Genosha storyline to tell a story about apartheid, it's like, well, it's not enough. But for 1988, in a Marvel comic under the Comics Code Authority? Right. It's remarkable. I reread this arc yesterday, 
like we said at the beginning of this episode, we've been rereading everything because we don't yeah. want to skip a single second of Madeline content for all of you. <laughs> but this is going to be the longest ever episode of this podcast, yeah. I guarantee, because I'm never doing this again. Yeah. We are digging into every single fucking issue. I was floored, as I always am when I reread this, but in the moment that's happening for trans people in this country right now, reading this again was really something. The way that the mutants are medicalized, the way that they are molested and tortured, the way that they are dehumanized. Their autonomy of their body is absolutely on the fritz. They're denied access to their genitals, literally. Yeah. There is just so much that happens in this storyline that is astounding. And it was about apartheid in that moment. And it still resonates in that way. But it also, unfortunately, 40 years later, really resonates in this moment. Yeah. That's the power of these stories because of the metaphor it's the double-edged sword of the metaphor, right? It's right. never quite specific enough to be exactly what you'd want. But because it's vague, you can apply it, it can apply to so many different situations. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 100%. Anyway, before the Genosha arc, there's the annual, the Evolutionary War annual. And that's just notable because there's a brief moment where, again, Maddie is manning the consoles and like helping the X-Men. So. Yep. For all that this dream sequence with Sim happened, she's back to normal the next day, so far as anyone can tell, and none of the X-Men notice that anything has happened. And that leads us directly into the Genosha arc, which begins in Uncanny X-Men 235. Here's the thing, people. Genosha leads directly into Inferno, which is crazy. Chris Claremont was batting a thousand yeah. in this period like every issue fucking bangs the yeah. idea that you could go directly from genosha literally the next issue is vanities the prologue to inferno is crazy no one has ever done it like this no this in is comics, wild period it's just all bangers yeah non-stop as much as we love what's going on with Madeline, like all of the characters that are popping up, this is some of the best rogue stuff ever. Absolutely. Storm is incredible during this. Kelly Thompson, who we were talking about earlier, she in Mr. and Mrs. X or Rogan Gambit, I forget exactly which one it was, but it was in that like series that she did of minis and maxis. She revisited this story in a way that was so great and she made it textual that the thing rogue needed to do to finally control her power was come to terms with what happened to her on genosha yeah and that's so smart yeah i was just like all right you did the reading yeah yeah kelly thompson if you're listening a plus yeah both of those series are really good i thought spiral is i mean like she also <laughs> iconically has spiral show up as ricochet rita to seduce gambit and i was just like right. you did the reading i love when someone's done the reading this is part of why teeny and i became friends was because oh, yeah. i could tell that teeny had not only done the reading she'd done the reading of like the alan moore shit that's hard to get your hands on in the same way that i did as yeah. a teenager who loved betsy braddock i love a writer who does the reading that's why al ewing is like my favorite yeah. comics writer because he does the reading and then he turns it into something new and magical and crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Genosha. 
this arc is something else. Yeah. And if you haven't read it, I would really suggest reading it. It's four issues, 235 to 238. It is like nothing else in comics at that time. It is a great example of why Uncanny X-Men was the biggest comic in the world. It kills to this day. Like, again, I reread it yesterday and I wept. Yeah. And I'm not like a big crier. I am. (laughs) (laughs) But like the stuff with Jenny Ransom is just... (sighs) agonizing this is why it's imperfect because it's the white perspective on apartheid right Mm -hmm. it's white people realizing the horror of apartheid and objecting yeah as with a lot of claremont stories it is that it's the white experience of understanding injustice this is the same issue with god loves man kills which i think is a super important comic Victor Laval and Evan Narciss both talked about how as black men, that comic was very important to them growing up, but it is from a white perspective. And this is like that also. With that caveat, it illuminates the horror of racism and of prejudice generally in a way that, I mean, I didn't read this story as a kid. I didn't have these issues until I was a little older because they weren't collected in trade. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably good because I think I needed to be a little older to understand them. Like, I think I was in high school the first time I read this story and I'm glad. Yeah, sure. The rogue stuff alone, I think I needed to like have more of a, a mature consciousness to understand it. Yeah. Yeah, it's heavy as shit. We're just going to talk about the Madeline stuff, but you truly must read it. I think it's one of Claremont's very best works, period. The fact that it still resonates today sucks, but (laughs) it's just factual and true. In the beginning of this story, we learn that Madeline, in addition to her work supporting the X-Men, has joined the Australian Service Auxiliary and has been working as a pilot to help with crisis relief. This is actually interesting to me because, again, if you go back to the Gateway and Manifold episode, Kyat and Klein. I can't say enough about that. Kyat and survived the Rwandan genocide, guys. Like, she's one of the most astonishing people I've ever met. She and her father are both relief pilots in crises like this. So this is a real thing. And especially in Australia, where you get brush fires, you get all kinds of shit in the outback. This is an important role. It is, again, Claremont providing a testament to Madeline's character that in addition to supporting the X-Men, even after she's had this weird dream where she kind of sold her soul to the devil, she signs up to be a medical relief evac pilot. And similarly is wearing a great outfit. It's a nice like green cardigan and cargo pants combo. She looks very put together. She has a ponytail. She's like taking Out the it back seriously. of the cap, right? Like Yeah, she's wearing a green baseball cap and has just like a ponytail up because she's serious. The plane she's in says flying doctor service. She's with a nurse named Jenny Ransom who says, there's the field. I really appreciate you filling in for my regular pilot, Madeline. We need the help. What was so many laid up by flu? My pleasure, Jenny. It's why I joined the service auxiliary. They touch down and... In the beginning of this issue, which is devastating, we see a Genosian mutant 
who has a newborn son and flees Genosha so that he can put the baby. It's a Superman moment. It's also like the Vietnam War and like people giving their babies to GIs. Like it's that. He puts the baby on a plane that's leaving Genosha because on Genosha, as we will soon learn, mutants are a slave class. 10 million souls on Genosha live in paradise because of a few hundred mutants who are enslaved and mind controlled and essentially lobotomized and forced to act as slaves. Jenny and Madeline touch down because they've received a call that someone needs help. And it turns out that it's a false distress call from a group of mutants called the Press Gang. The Press Gang have avoided the fate of other mutants on Genosha by becoming collaborators. And again, this is where I think Claremont's interest in his Jewish heritage and the Holocaust comes through. Like, these are capos. They're absolutely despicable. They're a couple white guys and a black woman, which I think is also notable in this apartheid allegory and we are meant to find them disgusting they are like some of the vilest characters you can meet in the claremont of they have put in a fake distress call because they're trying to find that baby but that's their secondary priority the top priority right now is jenny ransom because jenny ransom is a genotion politician's daughter who tested positive on their mutant test, doesn't know that, but her father told her she needed to leave and she went to Australia and became a nurse there. She's like, I'm a naturalized Australian citizen. You can't do this. And they're like, you know very well that Genosian citizenship is the only citizenship Genosia recognizes. They kidnap Jenny and Madeline. One of the press gang is this guy named Pipeline who's able to turn people into digital data. And then it's actually like, this is Chris being very ahead of the game because he's talking about the internet before it was really a thing. Like he refers to modems and stuff. Like Pipeline is able to turn you into digital bits and then send you across a modem line to Genosha where you're like spat out and teleported out. (laughs) I hate that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's really horrible, but it's like, no, 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 please. There's an interesting bit here where Hawkshaw, he's the tracker, is perturbed by Madeline because he can't see her with his power. And his power is to like sense people and particularly to sense any superhuman powers. And that's curious at first, but then later we find that he can't see any of the X-Men and it's because of Roma's blessing (laughs) that made them invisible to all censors, which hasn't come up a ton in the Outback era. It comes and goes, and eventually during the Siege Perilous era, it just fades out. (laughs) But in this arc, it's super important because not only can Hawkshaw not sense them, but whenever the Genosians try to put data about the X-Men into their computers, the data it erases itself mm-hmm. and the fact that rogue slash carol danvers and wolverine can't be seen by cameras factors into the plot several times right most interestingly the x-men's existence is like a computer virus like they try to input data on them into the genosian computers and the genosian computer just deletes it 
and everybody's like, what's going on with our computer systems? So the Genosians are freaked out about that sort of in the background of everything. But when I was first reading, I was like, ooh, is this the first hint of Madeline's strange name? But it's not, actually, it's because not. the X-Men have the same <laughs> thing. But don't yeah. worry, we'll get to hints of Madeline's strange nature <laughs> soon enough. Yeah. So after Maddie and Jenny Ransom are kidnapped by the press gang, the X-Men show up. Wolverine is sniffing around. He's like, okay, the press gang scents have been here for a while. He doesn't know who they are, but he's saying like, these scents are more recent, but the two women, including Madeline, it's like they disappeared. So everyone's able to deduce because they're all friends with Gateway. They're like, well, then clearly there's a teleporter, right? Wolverine says, Hemostat has that nurse's scent. What's her name? The one Madeline was flying with. Jenny Ransom. That's the one. Thanks, Psylocke. She and Madeline got dragged aboard the jet. Then it was wild blue yonder time. Alex is at Madeline's computer. And he says, okay, okay, at last I got this monster to work. These computers must like Madeline more than me. They jump through hoops for her. Well, Alex, she certainly spends enough time down here playing with them. It's her way, Dazzler, even though she's not a mutant and doesn't have any powers, of pulling her weight with the team. And then Alex thinks, down, boy, down. No need to be so defensive. Allie didn't mean anything nasty. Didn't realize I was so touchy where Madeline was concerned. Uh-oh. <laughs> then he says, tell Storm I have a radar contact outbound from her position. Psylocke, on course for Sydney. Nobody else even remotely close by. Could be our boys. We see throughout this issue Havoc's growing affection for Madeline in a way that makes him act out of character. He threatens to use lethal force on the Genosian magistrate several times because if they've hurt Madeline, I may not be so careful. Things like that. Chris is setting the stage here for the idea that with Lorna possessed by malice, with everything else lost to him, Madeline is the only thing Alex still has. And despite himself, he hasn't realized it, but he's in love with her. Whether that's healthy or not or good or not <laughs> is for archaeologists to decide someday. <laughs> but In a thousand years, maybe they'll be able to know. But for now, I just kind of want these two to get together. I just want them to be happy. I just want them to be happy because much as we, as we said, like Scott and Madeline together, and it was fun to revisit those stories. It was great. Scott will never love Madeline the way she needs to be loved because Scotty can never love Judy in Vertigo the way that she deserves to be loved. It's not possible. That's what the story tries to do, and it simply could not do it. Claremont tries to give Judy Barton a happy ending, and it doesn't work. He does if you stop at a certain place. Well, right. (laughs) If you stop at X-Men Alpha Flight, they live happily ever after, but that's what she says to Storm in Uncanny 201. She's like, I thought we had the happy ending, but then Jim Shooter showed up. <laughs> He's always showing up. He's always showing up. <laughs> Wolverine and Rogue get captured by the magistrates and taken to Genosha naked, which is key because later, Chief Magistrate Anderson, one of Claremont's most loathsome evil Claremont dames. Mm-hmm. You think Val Cooper's bad? Like, Chief Magistrate Anderson is one of the worst women on earth. I actually looked her up because I was like, does she appear again after this story? And Claremont, interestingly, gives her a heroic sacrifice in his run on Fantastic Four. 
Oh. <laughs> and I was like, that's fucked up. But then I went and read the issue. And it's actually interesting. What he did basically was have her, like, she believes in Genosha. And so even after the revolution, she stayed on. And it's kind of like Operation Paperclip vibes of, like, she knows everything, so they kept her. Yeah. And finally, to, like, defend her homeland, she drops a black hole device and kills herself and also the bad guy. And I was okay. like, you know what? <laughs> Chris Claremont is an interesting character. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. Because in this story, she is a Nazi. Yeah. And she will do anything to justify it. Yeah. She is disgusting. Yeah. But I think that part of the point of Claremont's Genosha storyline is that all of us are complicit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Americans, Britons, we're all as complicit as apartheid South Africans are because we don't stand up. And when she is talking to the gene engineer's son, and we'll get to the gene engineer in a moment, <laughs> who is one of Claremont's scariest villains. Ah, it's so scary. If people who are reading Ben Percy's X-Force were like underwhelmed by the reveal that the man with the peacock tattoo was a clone of the gene engineer, you got to read this story because yeah. the gene engineer is so scary. Yeah, he's terrifying. Like this is, he's like, I would put him on the same level as Cameron Hodge sure. Yeah. Just like so There's scary. a reason why Extinction Agenda is him and Cameron Hodge yeah. teaming up and it's the worst thing you can think of. It because sucks so bad. Yeah, I mean, the, the story is fun, but it sucks. Horrifying. <laughs> like he up. is just truly one. And it's at the same time that Mr. Sinister is emerging and it's these men, these eugenicists yeah. who Claremont sees as the most evil possible people fair <laughs> the point that's made throughout with the gene engineer storyline and the storyline with his son who we learn is jenny ransom's fiance and who discovers the truth of the horrors of genosha and objects and stands up against his father and wolverine is really proud of him chief magistrate anderson is like oh so you spent your whole life not questioning any of this and now you're judging me because i keep our government going and i keep our country happy fuck you and so there's this interesting thing where it's like chief magistrate anderson is obviously the fucking devil but she also has a point about other characters who are Genosian, like Jenny Ransom, who just looked away. Yeah, they didn't want to see it, so they didn't see it, right? And she's like, I look right at it, and I know what I am, yeah. but I do it for the good of this country. And so right. after rereading, I was like, okay, Claremont giving her a heroic sacrifice for her country actually makes sense. It's much like the way he views Val Cooper. Right. Where it's like, this person is despicable, but they are a true patriot. Yeah. And that's good and bad yeah. in different moments, you yeah. know? Like, they will sacrifice themselves, but also most of the time they are a fucking monster. And it's yeah. interesting to me whenever he puts that in a female character, because obviously Chris cares more about female characters than male characters. So whenever he does it, it feels like he's making some kind of important statement, like pay attention to this character. She's a woman. Uh, so yeah. Oh man. It's the same reason why I think the black character who is collaborating is a woman also. Sure. He just always leans into that where he's like, 
And she's a woman, too. You'd think she would be more sensitive or more maternal no, or whatever. Nazi. And he's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they're just not. I mean, it's why he's interested in Andrea von Strucker for the same reason, right? <laughs> she's the more terrifying one. Andreas is more of a loser. Yeah, totally. And Andrea is really scary. Yeah. Anyway, Rogue and Wolverine are captured, and we see Jenny and Madeline imprisoned by the Genosians, and Madeline shouts, Rogue, Wolverine, see Jenny? I told you they'd come to rescue us. Madeline, so this is where she and that nurse got to. We must have been zapped here, wherever the blazes that is, the same way. Because they were also sent by Pipeline. There's a fun bit while the X-Men are figuring out what happened to all of their friends and Gateway is like bull roaring them around where (laughs) we cut to the basement where all the computer consoles that Madeline uses are and it's... (laughs) Sorry, I keep laughing, but it's so funny. I love Nastir. <laughs> I'm like a big Nastir head. I think he's sure. a really funny character. He is funny. This is his second appearance. The demon Nastir had first appeared a month prior in X Factor, where Louise Simonson depicts him making a dark demonic pact with Cameron Hodge. So we know he's a demon, he's bad news, he has vast power. And so we cut down to Madeline's computer consoles. Our heroes are off again. Once more, Gateway is alone and silence claims his desert. But beneath its eternal sands, in the computer center that is in many ways the heart of this sprawling secret complex, things are happening. And that's how I describe so many events on this show. (laughs) So I appreciate that Chris also describes it that way. Suddenly the screen goes and we see Nastir come into focus. And if you've not read any comics with Nastir guys, he has like a horse head. Yeah. He's like a weird looking demon guy, but he's super funny. I I find him super charming and I would love to tell an Nastir story someday. He gets so good through this whole thing. Like, you're just going to love it as we go along. You're going to fall in love with this character, too. He is the most extra dude. He is the star outside of Madeline of Inferno. Like, Nasir is iconic. He is. All of the other characters, like Sim, sketchball. We don't really want to hear from him. Sim just sucks. We just hate Sim. What's so funny is that, like, Claremont uses Sim to seduce Madeline because Sim was a pre-existing character. But immediately when Nasir shows up, it's like, this is Sim's boss, FYI, who's, like, a real character that you can like and think is funny. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, fuck Sim. Yeah, fuck Sim. But this guy's hilarious. And he's so in over his head immediately, which is really Well, that's what's so funny. Because, like, whatever reason caused them to focus on Madeline, they come to regret it very quickly oh no (laughs) she's way more than they anticipated anyway he clicks onto the monitor and like fades and he goes hello hello i am nastia sim told me to get in touch with you regarding some special merchandise you're interested in but since you're not about I'll ring back later. Have a nice day. And he disappears. Uh, Such a good moment. Nasir hijacking the computer console is hilarious to me. And it actually, you know what? It's a good foreshadowing of his eventual techno-magical aims. (laughs) He's impressed by modern technology. It's true. He's on the internet. (laughs) 
But so later we cut to Madeline and Jenny on slabs about to be experimented upon and tortured. The scientist is like, incredible, the ransom girl registers, but this other woman doesn't. As far as our electronic metascanners are concerned, she doesn't exist. We'll have to examine her manually. And they're about to do something horrendous yep. to Madeline. And then suddenly on the Genosian computer console, Nastir appears. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says, there you are, milady. You're a difficult person to get a hold of. Oh, forgive me. Have I called at an inconvenient time? <laughs> Genosian scientist is like question mark exclamation point question mark and Maddie in tiny Tom Wozniakowski font looks at Nasir and says later <laughs> She's yes. like, not a good time they're gonna torture me right now I will be in touch with you in a minute because we have a lot to talk about actually and I'm glad that you got in touch we have to go over what's been happening to me for the last 12 hours because I'm not a fan. <laughs> so hilarious just to be in the middle of this arc and then like to be like, no, not right now. <laughs> not right now. I'm dealing with Nazi experimentation right now. But boy, howdy, are we going to have a talk <laughs> later? Because I would like superpowers and I would like to kill every man who's ever wronged me. But yes. later, not this second. We need to be a little subtler than this. We're in the middle of a room with all these people in it. <laughs> Maddie is, is she, she understands timing, you yes. know? And if I think that else, that's an important yes. skill. Yeah. And he goes, your slightest wish, milady, is my command. And explodes the console, which makes all of the scientists freak out. Like, what the hell? <laughs> When we next see Maddie, she is in the psionics examination lab where they are explaining the process that they force all mutants to undergo to her. We're bonding this skin suit to your flesh. In effect, it becomes your skin. It's done with all mutes so they can be instantly recognized as such. Moreover, it protects you from the elements and injury. It's completely self-contained, totally reprocessing all bodily waste. A marvel of engineering, really. I'm sure, says Madeline, as they are torturing her and bonding a rubber fetish suit to her skin. But if this is a sealed system, what about children? Mutes don't have any in the traditional way. Gene engineer extracts your genetic material, mixes and matches it with the others to create the required biological synthesis. Babies are decanted right down the hall. Don't fret, though. When we're through, you won't miss kids or anything else. Uh, it's horrible. And the yeah. telepath is reaching for her and, like, dips into her mind and says, how deeply must I probe? Chief Magistrate and Gene engineer want everything you can get. And Maddie looks at him and says, stay out of my mind, telepath. If you resist, there will be pain. I don't care. I'm warning you. Leave me alone. There's an alarm from the psionics lab. Psylocke, by the way, Betsy is trying to scan for Madeline and Jenny and has a sudden like psychic shock feedback that knocks her on her ass. As the gene engineer rushes to the psionics lab to see what's happened, they find everyone in the lab extremely dead. Yeah. And Madeline not there. Yeah. <laughs> Madeline gets scary here and it's really She gets fun. real scary here, but it's so cool. It's so cool. It's just like, oh. <laughs> 
it's like, damn, bitch, it's like that? Like, she kills the shit out of so many people in this storyline, but because they are literal Nazis... They are Nazis, yeah. so good. Yeah. At the same time that you're watching her be corrupted and fall into the influence of Limbo, you're like, but girl, I get it. Go yeah. off, queen. Yeah, like, I mean, just all of the <laughs> stuff that they were doing to people around you, like, the everything yes! that was going Much on. less what they were then doing to you personally, and you're like, no, 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 now you die. Yeah, everybody dies and it is perhaps one of the best moments because everything that you just said about gene engineer like so scary and she's scarier she's scarier, scarier. than the gene engineer and that keeps happening with her like up to this very day when madeline shows up she's the scariest person in the room she's way scarier than mr sinister there's no one no one in the world is scarier than this woman and we don't quite know why yet although we have some idea because we <laughs> the reader have seen her consorting with demons yeah but it's just one of those things where like the way claremont writes madeline's descent into the goblin queen from here on out because this is the final issue before inferno yep <laughs> This is 238, which if you haven't read it, again, you got to read the whole arc, 235 to 238. But if you haven't read it, 238 is, this is maybe the greatest Maddie Pryor issue of them all. Yeah. It is a testament to her character in all of her complexity. And it is brutal. Yeah. From start to finish. If anything was going to break you, like... Genosha, right? Like, I think that's. It fucking breaks her. It destroys her belief. The woman who spoke to Neil Conan in Fall of the Mutants dies here. Yeah. Yeah. Because she looks around herself and she's just like, actually, the whole world's gotta go. Yeah. If this can be allowed, if this can be happening and no one is doing anything about it, then this whole species needs to be eradicated. And in that way, she embodies the phoenix, right? Because the phoenix burns away what doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. She looks around herself and thinks, this species has failed. I'm going to burn it all down. Yeah. And she does whatever she can do for the next 10 issues or whatever until her death. To make that happen. It's misguided, but you understand why she's doing it. Right. Because if they said that it was just Scott, right? But that's not just what happened. It wasn't just Scott abandoning her. It's been this catastrophic series of events that ended in Genosha, right? So it's just like... If anybody's been through it, this woman's been through it. Like, this is a wild story. It is wild. You're kind of on her side. I mean, it's... I am in this story until the very end, but we'll Uh, get there when we get there. Because at the very end, she makes a bad choice. Yes. But again, you understand why she did it. 
Yeah. So important context before we start this issue. We mentioned this at the top of the episode. Claremont has an earlier character called Maddie Pryor. Yes. <laughs> she appears in Avengers Annual number 10, which is a 1981 issue. It is the issue about Ro like yep. because Ms. Marvel got canceled, it's the issue that explains Rogue absorbing Carol Danvers's psyche and powers. Mm-hmm. There's also this brief sequence where a child in a yellow nightgown named Maddie Pryor is in the hospital because she's been very ill and a nun comes to pick her up because the implication is she's an orphan. Yeah. A nurse says, take care, little darling, we'll miss you. And a police officer says, I'll get the door, Sister Luke. The nun says, why, thank you, Sergeant Golachinsky. And little Maddie says, hello. I'm Maddie Pryor. I've been sick, but I'm better now. And the cop says, so I see. That's it. There's nothing else to this character. And lots of people have tried to figure out how they can make them the same character. Yeah, and you kind of can't, but... You kind of can't, but in this first page of this story, gonna be a revolution, which, again, like... We're not going into the whole Genosha arc now, but after the journey that Carol and Logan have been on throughout this storyline, when it says next gonna be a revolution and Logan's like, I'm going to bring this whole fucking country down. You're like, yeah, you fucking are. Yeah. Fuck these people. Yeah. (laughs) This is the worst place in the world. It opens on this like little girl in a field of flowers with butterflies gonna be a revolution. Ah, it's just perfection. She has red hair here, whereas the Maddie Pryor in the Avengers annual had brown hair. But otherwise, it's the exact same character design. It's an orange nightgown with matching bows in her hair and pigtails. This little girl is picking daisies in a meadow. And the engineer says, I thought we couldn't scan the woman's thoughts. We can't. This is a psychic transcript from the mind of the examining telepath. Evidently, this is how the woman perceives herself. What's that song she's singing? Gone to America by a group called Steel Eye Span. Is that significant? Unknown. Too much about this woman is unknown, Chief Magistrate. I don't like it. Genocean Bureau of State Security, Office of the Chief Magistrate, Mind Tap Recording 11311819, 1 August 1988, Monday. Which, again, I love when there's like an explicit date on a Marvel comic in universe, right? The Genegineer suddenly appears and says, who are you? And in the voiceover, we hear the Genegineer say, that's me. Correct, Genegineer. Even though the telepath was conducting the interrogation, the woman correctly perceived you as the true source of the questions. The imagined Genegineer in Maddie's mindscape snatches the daisies away from her and shouts, Stop this foolishness, girl! What's the meaning of this childhood facade where your true personality should be? I was sick, but I got better. Why are you yelling? Why'd you hit me? Why do you want to hurt me? And we zoom in on little child Maddie's eye and the phoenix raptor erupts within it. Uh... You're not human! I am what I am. What men like you have made me. And that's the other Aya Asher Aya moment that's really key with Maddie. Yeah. Magistrates, open fire! Shoot to kill! Destroy her! 
the telepaths panicking, those magistrates, they're representations of his own psi power, as well as his team of support telepaths. What's happening? She's changing! She isn't human! What mutant is, idiot? As much a bird of fire as a woman! Kill her! Kill her! Kill her! Keep firing! And the fiery mushroom cloud that is Madeline Pryor says, If I die, oh man, it will not be alone. That hill. That's the location of the Citadel, Magistrate Headquarters. And suddenly the Genegineer is running through a wasteland after this nuclear explosion in Mr. Sinister's costume. Oh Lord, my Lord, have mercy, gone, all gone, smashed to bits, transformed into a charnel house. But why was I spared? Shall we say, whim? You, <laughs> the one and only. Applause. Maddie in full Goblin Queen regalia is perched atop the wreckage. But you're different, aren't we all? From chaos, change, and change growth. The pattern of life is all this creation. Question, though, is this the growth, the change, or the chaos? No, it can't be. I've never lost control of an interrogation. First time for everything. Why am I dressed like this? What do you want? And then, of course, we see the cape flowing behind The her. Goblin Queen and Chief Magistrate Anderson says, Look at her, Jean Janeiro. She's hesitating, confused. I don't think she knows the answer. The one, because it pleases me. The other, as a warning to your masters. Be careful when you strike a match even if only to light your way through the darkness, because you never know when you'll ignite <laughs> an inferno <laughs> interrogation terminated. Oh, no. And we cut to the war room on Genosha where the gene engineer and all his people are sitting around like, what the <laughs> fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> 13 seconds. 13 seconds. Impossible. Upon entering the laboratory, we found the examining team dead. That's neat. Bureaucratic understatement. The poor wretches were torn to bits. Mutant 9818 was sedated and returned to her cell. What the devil happened, Wipeout? Why didn't you use your power when she was processed to erase hers? Because Wipeout is part of the press gang. He can negate superhuman powers. I tried, Genegineer, the full treatment, but I can't wipe out what doesn't exist. Doesn't exist! She slaughtered that examining team! Brush aside their psychic defenses as if they didn't exist! Too many questions, too many unknowns. Her companions might have provided some answers, Chief Magistrate, if your people hadn't let them escape! An all-points alarm has been issued. We'll get them, David. It's merely a matter of time. That isn't good enough. Don't any of you understand? Time's the one commodity that's fast running out. And he confronts Madeline in her cell. Who are you? What are you? Mutant prisoner 9818. <laughs> the pilot you kidnapped. The woman you and your pet Gestapo have been happily torturing. You butchered my interrogation team. So you say. All I remember is being strapped to a table with your pet telepath hard to turn my mind inside out. It didn't bother him that the process violated me or that it hurt. He seemed to enjoy it. The next I knew, I was here, back in my cell. You call it butchery, others might call it self-defense. But what I think and feel and want don't really matter, do they? I was condemned the moment I arrived here. 
We have a way of life on Genosha that's the envy of the world. It must be protected. Ever wonder if your slaves share those passions? Our mutants are well cared for. They want for nothing except freedom. They're as free as they need to be. Most people on Earth would welcome such freedom in return for the material well-being that accompanies it. It's important to stress that Maddie is now drawn in a super spooky way. Yes. She mostly exists in the shadows, her green eyes glowing out of them, her red hair. She is herself a force of nature at this point. Yeah. Whenever he first shows up, she is like slouching and she's got her hands folded over her knees and she looks tough as shit. And now she's like a supernatural creature in these panels. Yeah. Then what are you so scared of? If your system's such a marvel, why not share it with everyone? Don't be naive. The knee-jerk bleeding hearts would condemn us out of hand while working covertly to expropriate and exploit our parahuman resources for themselves. Our secrecy is our strength, our security, our survival. And if some innocent bystanders get chopped along the way, them's the breaks, huh? What is necessary is done. Sieg Heil to you too, sweetie. That's my favorite line. <laughs> so She's got the face too. Like Sylvester really sells this as like a complete Nazi we're looking at. Yes! Right now. <laughs> and she's like, you are a fool, Jean Janeer, to debate with her. It gives her views a validity that they do not merit. Either we are right in what we do, in which case argument is pointless, or we are wrong, in which case argument is equally pointless. We do not question the course of our lives. We remain true to it and make whatever sacrifices are required of us. We have a word of your son. Because his son has been causing all kinds of trouble since he found out his fiance is a mutant and is being processed and all of that. Yeah. When we cut back to Maddie later, it's with Jenny Ransom in the prison. And Jenny says, All I wanted was to help people, to save lives. There's no need here. The healers take care of that. So I immigrated to Australia and joined the Flying Doctor Service. I thought as a nurse I could make a difference. Be of real service. The gene engineer says that my progeny will be healers, but not me. I'll shape rock, not flesh. A brute excavator in the mines. Look at me, Madeline. The transformation's already begun. And Madeline reaches through the bars of her cell to wipe away Jenny's tears and says, I know how you feel, Jenny. I had powers once. I was a healer. This is why I went back to X-Men Alpha Flight and read the shit out of it. Because yeah. I think it's so key. Uh-huh. I had powers once. I was a healer. I thought having them was the most wonderful thing in the world. Next to my husband and my baby... I didn't know how I'd ever endure losing them, but lose them I did. Powers, husband, son. I found the strength to endure. So will you. I'm scared. I'm so scared. Why do they have to do this? Mutant 9817, time for another session. I have a name. Not anymore. I'm Jennifer Ransom. No, don't look so sad, girl. It's not so bad as you think. Why, when this is over, you won't remember a stitch of your old life. You'll be ready and eager to begin the new, happy in your work for the rest of your days. And it cuts to Madeline's face as in tiny, teeny, tiny Tom Orzakowski font with a speech bubble that has the Phoenix bubble. The, like, cosmic, when, like, Jean or Rachel is like, fuck you. She goes, I'll see you all burn first.
It's so good. It's really nice. Uh, and it's like, it's what we need in this arc because there is so much heavy shit going on. What's happening on. is horrific. Yeah. I mean, there's such a casual, like even our heroes here are the G Engineer's son and Jenny Ransom, who are both complicit in the horrors of Genosha. Yeah. Jenny is devastated because she finds that, like, she didn't know she was a mutant because her father falsified the test results. And as a result, a different girl whose test got swapped with hers was subjected to the mutate bonding process and died screaming. And the gene engineer tells her that when he's like, and now you have to fulfill your debt to our society because that innocent girl died for you. It's like all of them are fucked this whole society is fucked yeah there's a really sickening portion in the issue before this where wolverine watches like a genosian propaganda video and he's just like I, I... these fucking people like this is the worst place i've ever heard of and i've lived a really long time <laughs> yeah like, this is unbelievably horrific logan's been to every war right like i've been right. in every war of like the last hundred years an interesting piece in this story actually and claremont never got to tell this story but he mentions at one point i've been a slave i didn't care for it okay because to claremont we don't even know how old this guy right. is that's now hard to like grok in the Logan history that we now know. But at the right. time it was a totally valid thing for him to say. For all we knew, he had been a slave in like Roman times. Roman like times. we didn't really know anything about the history of this character yeah. at this point. Eventually the X-Men burst in. Havoc blasts a hole in the prison and screams, Madeline! Empty, like all the others. Figured the cell block would be the most logical place to look. So much for that bright idea. And he picks up maddie's skin suit which they surgically bonded to her flesh but she just took it off yeah because fuck you <laughs> you can't control me i won't be ruled by you i won't be condemned by you what's this one of those suits the genosian mutants wear and the door blown off its hinges from the inside maddie has blown her way out Someone else. Freeze, Buster. And he turns on the gene engineer's son. Don't shoot, please. You a mutant? I'm looking for my fiance, Jenny Ransom. She's a prisoner here. And Havoc says, as we cut to a fascinating panel uh -huh. of Madeline nude, sitting in darkness with a baby at her breast. Uh -huh. It's the baby, the mutant baby, that the mutant father tried to save at the beginning of the arc who the press gang recaptured. She is breastfeeding this child. Not literally, but that's the gesture. Like the child right. is sleeping, but it, it looks like that's what she's... You have to look a second time. To realize that she's not. Yeah. Havoc says, I'm after a lady named Madeline Pryor in the same boat. Maybe then, if you've no objection, we could search together. And we cut to Madeline. Maddie is looking out at the crash, the facility on Genosha where mutate DNA is recombined and used to clone new mutant slaves, the progeny that Jenny was talking about. And she says, so this is the crash where the gene engineer grows his babies. She's talking to the infant. You don't know how lucky you are, baby boy, coming into the world the old fashioned way. Strange though. There's a resonance about this place, as though it somehow 
familiar. Why do you think that is, Jean Janier? And he's over her shoulder with a gun pointed at her. Why did I sense that of all places I'd find you here? Perhaps I summoned you. Then you do have powers. Or the wit to run a bluff, and the skill to make it convincing. I should have ordered your termination at the first sight of trouble. An oversight I'll gladly remedy myself. Please set the child down. Remember your telepath? If that was my reaction to a psychic death, imagine the response to the real thing. I'm not afraid to die. Then pull the trigger, and we'll find out which of us is bluffing, and which truly bound for glory. Dad, no! <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> when Philip Moreau, the junior son, rushes in and punches his dad. And Havoc is with him and shouts, Madeline! <laughs> and embraces her naked form. And she says, about time, lover. Uh-huh. <laughs> they haven't fucked yet as far as we know. Right. But she's just like, oh. I know what's up. And you know what's up. Yeah. I was beginning to wonder if you'd forgotten me. Never. <laughs> Philip turns to the engineer. Where's Jenny, dad? Take us to her. So help me. I'll use this. And points the gun at his head. Sure does. This scene is drawn. I can't express. It's the inks. <laughs> like, shout out to the anchor on this fucking issue. Dan Green. And Glynis Oliver, who does the colors. As always. Great. As always, the goat. Maddie is so scary in this scene. (laughs) Because the blacks, like the inks that are used to shadow her face as she's like, then pull the trigger, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And is like smiling. And you can see because the engineer is scared of her. And I can't imagine. He's terrified. He wouldn't be scared of anybody. He's not scared of any of the X-Men. He's the fascist dictator of the most vile apartheid state on the planet. And he is terrified of this woman when he comes back anytime no one scares him on the level that madeline does and it is wild to kind of see this scene play out that's why we just want to see her put him down again in the modern day yeah it's just god it's good it's iconic moment when he says i'm not afraid to die and she says then pull the trigger i'm just (laughs) like yes bitch go off and he's saying i'm not afraid to die because he's so afraid to die like you can see terrified to die this like gun shaking like there's i'm like pointing at the screen right now which means i'm pointing at you right now (laughs) but like yeah so like the way that all of the action lines look in this like mark silvestri is like the master of that right yeah and the way that madeline goes from that very scary presence to like buck naked like girl on a frank frazetta kind of painting pose with havoc and how like that's just kind of like she's so like hey what's up to havoc and you're like uh-oh she's so embodied now yeah it's the diametric opposite to her dream where scott took all of her body parts yeah away. Now she is fully, this is my body. And I'm not letting these men who just violated me take it or touch it or do anything to it. And what she recognizes in the creche, in the engineer's eugenic chamber, though she doesn't know it yet, is Sinister's orphanage where she was born. Yeah. In the same way that she put him instinctively in Sinister's outfit, in her psychic vision, even though she's never seen Mr. Sinister in reality. 
she knows that just like Philip Moreau is trying to rebel against his father, that this is about her father and she hates her father. <laughs> she can feel it even though she doesn't know yet. And it's going to lead to the best Mark Silvestri page of all time, which we're getting to in relatively short order once we get into Inferno. Yeah. This story absolutely bangs. Yeah. The resolution is where Madeline makes her first wrong decision. Because I truly am on her side for the entirety of this storyline all the way up until this moment. They're trying to figure out what to do. And the engineer and Chief Magistrate Anderson are like, you'll destroy our country if you go public. And Philip and Jenny are like, we don't care. We're going public as fuck. The X-Men offer to bring them to America or Australia or somewhere so that they can be essentially contested leadership in exile and make a case to save Genosha from itself from a foreign country with asylum. Havoc asks Madeline what happened to the baby and she says, oh, don't worry, that's all taken care of because it's the first baby she's given to Nastir. Yeah. Uh, so that's not great no that's super bad <laughs> that's, that's super bad of bad. her when maddie is wrong i will acknowledge it <laughs> the baby stuff and threnody are really the two moments where i'm like don't love that yeah the babies are not great but at this point after facing genosha she is like all right if we have to sacrifice some babies to Satan to end the world, I'm going to do it. Because yeah. fuck the world. This world fucking sucks. Yeah. She will later say to Sinister, I abjure life. Yeah. She's like, it's over. Yeah. Fuck it. This world sucks. Attack and dethrone God. Like, that's what she's doing here. And I don't approve of her methods. <laughs> But I get it. Yeah. And at this point, she's been influenced by a lot of people in the same way yes. that we don't really, you know, we've had this conversation before where it's like in the same way that I do believe that Phoenix is Jean, you know, like mm -hmm. Maddie's always herself. I don't think she ever isn't herself. Except in X Factor 38. But we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> She is not necessarily... I'll say there, she's herself. I just think she's lying yeah. to upset people. I think so, too. That's kind of how I always read those issues. When I reread this morning, I was like, this absolutely works in my reading as long as we just accept that she is lying because she's suicidal and wants them to kill her. Yeah, and we don't know my, what might have happened to the babies. Maybe she was totally going to go back for them. <laughs> Maybe. It's fine. It doesn't turn out well for those babies, no. unfortunately, thanks to Zeb Wells in New Mutants Volume 3. No. But Maddie didn't know that. You know. She was going to give them a quick and easy death, sacrifice them to the devil. It was going to be fine. Well, They're babies. What so do they know? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, everyone was going to die. That was the whole point. They were going to die like three <laughs> minutes before everyone else. We're like, listen, I think you all are really obsessing about the baby thing a lot. You're really <laughs> obsessing about the baby factor when the point is that she was going to commit omnicide. So like, you know, and listen, do I approve of that? No. Do I 
get it. I get it. After you look in the engineer's eyes. After the engineer holds a gun to your head and is like, I'm not afraid to die. And you're like, actually, there's nothing you're more afraid of. And humanity is so pathetic that I'm now choosing to transcend it and destroy it. Yeah. Fair enough. As above, so below. She is the phoenix just as much as Jean, but she is the phoenix's wrath Yeah, Jean is the phoenix's love. Yeah. And that's the critical distinction between them. Yeah. And we see a lot of that coming up, even though, like, there's definitely moments where we're like, oh, maybe that doesn't quite add up <laughs> in some of these issues. We're making it work. This is the we're theory of the case. Work. We're making it happen. <laughs> Notably, right before she tells Alex, don't worry about the baby, I took care of it, she kisses him on the mouth. Yeah, she does. Which he's very taken aback by, but not mad about. What I have learned from Jean Grey is, is that the second that like a little bit of overt sexiness happens, you're going to be evil. Like Dark Phoenix is coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is a wrap on session two of this episode which was four hours just like session one and we're coming back tomorrow baby that's right i'm gonna buy another bottle of wine we're gonna sit down yeah and sarah and i are gonna do inferno which is next issue then guess what we're gonna do x-man we're gonna do matt <laughs> fraction's hot ass mess of the sisterhood arc which will at least be fun yeah we'll be back there's not even a break for you to listen to it's gonna happen after like x-men x-men right now <laughs> x-men x-men in the 21st century people mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is X-Men.